0: BBC Five Live. Five so much entertainment in such a short time.
1: You're right, Mark. I'm all right, Simon.
0: You're Thank having you. particularly sensational.
1: I always look sensational, and you always look like someone who's just escaped from nursery. <laughs> that's
0: right. That's true.
1: <laughs> that's a bad point. I have to say, I am. Slightly admiring of the fact that, despite the fact that you're now well into your thirties, yes, you still dress like a student. Yes,
0: although when I was a student, I didn't quite have this class of
1: knitwear, knitwear <laughs> 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 that I'd been wearing for a number of years. I looked up. I was for for actually. I, it's too complicated to explain, but I came across a photograph of you from. I suppose it must be 1925? From 1925. When you were in your... Pomp. S- Pomp. Spiky blonde, smiley, happy face of, you know... Some of the pups? I don't even know some of the pups. It was obviously a publicity photograph, but you literally looked like a child. And I realised that you must have been famous when you were very young. No, not because- at all. I just always looked young. I didn't... No, it was like so. Like, when 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 you were doing when you were the voice of a nation on Pop Radio One, how how old were you then? Twenty eight. Joined at twenty eight. Yeah, old honestly, this photo literally it made you look like a teenager. Like it made you look. Like I got asked how old I was going into pubs until I was about 33, 34. Okay, so, I, so this isn't just me imagining it. You were somebody who looked preternaturally young. I have passed that on to Child One. Who okay. Uh, now. You, well, you still look younger than because you're actually forty eight, aren't you? Apparently so.
0: I got a postcard. We got a postcard here. You go. I'm delivering this. This came to. Um, you. Although it says
1: five live on it, it went to Radio Two. I, on the well, other hand, look older than I am. No, you don't. You no, I do. No, just I do. look appropriate. So I read this out. Age appropriate. What? What's it a postcard of? Where's it from? Um, that is a flyover. Is it Sheffield? Is that Sheffield? Shall I just... Shall I do the reading out bit? I'll do it. All right, you do it. Okay. I recognise that flyover, but I can't think why. It's Sao Paulo, Brazil. Oh, okay. So not Sheffield. No. <laughs> the 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 clue is the uh, Brazilian
0: stamps and the bit where it says uh, Avenue Twenty Three, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, it's from Mark. You know Graham. what? In the right light, Sheffield looks a lot like Brazil. Uh, this apparently shows that Sao Paulo has a few fans of the show, but is this the first real postcard from Brazil? Best wishes from Mark. Mark Hillary, who's in Brazil. Uh, yes, it's the first
1: postcard of Brazil that looks like Sheffield. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> no, it, well. I tell you why. Because that photograph looks n- not unlike the cover of uh, Sleep no- Not Sleep No More, Waiting for a Miracle by the Comsat Angels, which is a photograph taken on the road going... Okay. all right. Don't roll your eyes because I mentioned the Comsat Angels. Okay. Just What's your favourite concert Angels tracks on? I
0: haven't I can't recall any. You not? Really? Like most people listening, okay. I can't recall too. Are many.
1: you wedded to the first three Polydor albums or did you stay with them through the So an email years. from Ruby Wybrow, uh which is a top name. How do you spell Wybrow?
0: W H Y B R O W. Weebrow? Why? I don't know. W
1: H Y. Do you ever say we for W H Y? Well it depends if it's in a name. I mean I, well I mean maybe but will be Wybrow, but you know. Anyway. She says...
0: um, Have we cleared that up? STL and F... Well, it was quite clear until you confused the matter. I'm actually not sure what constitutes a short-term listener and what period of time is needed to pass for one to make the transition to a medium-term listener, but I suppose it's this lack of technical knowledge that keeps me being branded an STL anyway. So that's clear. I'm 21 and I'm currently studying in the brilliant, mad, glittering metropolis that is Hong Kong, but obviously looks like Sheffield. This means that there is often, uh, as fellow international wit will know, a later release of films than the UK. Okay. And that's why I'm mostly unable to act immediately on Mark's reviews each week and rush off to the cinema. This week, however, I discovered a good game to play whilst browsing cinema websites for showings in advance. So you have to guess the film from the Chinese to
1: English translations. OK. OK, so these are the Chinese names... For movies that are around now... Yeah, so this is movies that have been translated into Chinese and now you're translating the Chinese title back into That's English, right. which this is, this is a a long-standing thing, like, for example, um, A Star is Born. I think the Chinese title was The Bitter Tears of Little Singing Star. It tends to be so sort of oddly literal. Right, so now we are straight back up to date here with at- these
0: movies. Okay. Perfect Huge Help 3. What's that going to be? Hang
1: on. Perfect Huge Help 3. Yeah. Perfect and three are the clues. No, no, Pitch Perfect three. Oh, okay, fine. But perfect, huge help. Huge help. Okay, uh, shrink people. Okay, so that must be downsizing. Yes. Yeah. Billboard killings. Yeah. <laughs> I think that speaks for itself. That's the Epping Forest Epping one. Forest one. Yeah. Escape Magic Age
0: Jungle Pickup Machine Jumanji. Yeah. Uh, escape from the jungle. Obviously, being the clue there. Yeah. Big. This is this is utterly baffling. Okay. Big Entertainment House.
1: Well that will be the great the, the greatest showman.
0: It is the greatest showman, but you know there are better ways of describing. It. Yeah.
1: Yes there are, like not entertaining house or like College of Bad Songs. This is quite tricky now. Hollywood Lively Film King. That's it. It's just call Hollywood Lively Film Hollywood King. Hollywood Lively Film King. Okay, so that will be the uh, the disaster artist. It is very
0: good, very good. And this one which is most <laughs> I mean really really outrageously okay. bad. Okay. Arrogant Woman.
1: This film isn't out yet. Arrogant Woman. It's not I, Tonya, is it? it absolutely no! It is I, Tonya. <laughs> isn't that... It's like, it's like editorial being put in the title. How do you get from I, Tonya to Arrogant Woman? <laughs> it's just, not even Arrogant Ice Skating Woman. No, Ice Skating... <laughs> the, key, the key thing about that character is not not arrogant, which incidentally... As, is, as you say, an editorial judgment, but the ice skating bit. Yes, let's just forget about that and let's just say... If you, it, if you called it f- famous ice skating incident, there would be more... Or well, infamous ice skating incident. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> all of those would have been better, so who knows, anyway.
0: So, uh, anyway, Ruby, thank you very much indeed for that. Um, uh, Tom Kennedy, still the only member of Acupuncturists Annex, as far as he knows. <laughs> I thought I'd write and share a strange
1: widow... as he sent in a very pointed email? Pretty good. Pointed, but... Uh, no, I'm not going to get into that discussion about... That. Has it touched the nerve? It's, what were you going to say? Pointed, but unproven? No, I wasn't. I know what you were... But no, you've got I that wasn't. face on. You've got that face but on. I am absolutely it's... not getting into that discussion at all. Can because, I get some, Can I get some
0: homeopathic remedies? Tom is a very, very important member of the church. So, Yeah, I'm not...
1: I, I, hey, I,
0: you know... I'm on my way home from work on a Friday night, listening to your podcast, my usual Friday night ritual. I have 20 minutes to wait for my bus, so I've popped into an overpriced hotel bar for for (laughs) half a lager. I'm I'm concurrently listening to Mark talk on my headphones, whilst he's also on the TV in the bar, talking about The Post on the BBC News. Now that, ladies and gentlemen... Is multitasking. It's like I'm on Planet Kerr mode, or rather Quantum, baby. The TV volume is down, but there are subtitles, and they just quoted Mark as saying, and I quote, It'll make you laugh, and it'll make you weeb. <laughs> and Tom says, I don't want to weeb, so I don't think I'm going to go and see The Post. All the reasons not to go and see The Post, not wanting to weeb. So presumably that is, it'll make you laugh,
1: it'll make you cry. is it? No, weep. Oh, weep. oh would be weep, is it? Well, I imagine so. I can't. Yes, I think it must be weep. I can't imagine what else it would have been. Can I just say, sorry, on the subject of acupuncture, acupuncture is very well recognised. Yes, it is, that's right. Okay.
0: It is. It is very well recognised. Robbie and uh, Dear Big Cook and Little Cook, I write to report a code violation. Yesterday I went to see the excellent three billboards for the second time at the legendary Holloway Road. So podium. that's six billboards. Correct. The screening was reasonably full, as one would expect on a rainy afternoon. Unsurprisingly, there was the usual rustling of sweet packets, which was slightly irritating, but not unbearable. However, 25 minutes or so into the film, by which point the audience were comfortably settled into the viewing experience, one of my cinema colleagues clearly took objection to one particular episode of rustling and shouted extremely loudly and very aggressively into the darkened room, Will whoever is rustling, please stop it? Good for them understandably, this was a little distracting. Thankfully, having already seen the film, it didn't knock me off the story much, but this was not the case for my girlfriend, who was viewing the film for the first time and found it extremely difficult to immerse herself back in the story. It really made us both feel quite uncomfortable, or extremely uncomfortable, and put a real downer on the experience. I get that the rustling can be a little irritating, but by that point, it's quite clear it's a feature of the audience. Isn't it better to put up with it, rather than to shout so loudly and so aggressively across the room
1: and ruin everyone else's experience. Well, here's the question: Did the rustling stop?
0: I'm afraid I am not equipped to answer that question. I don't have the information.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. It, it, where do you stand on this? Well,
0: this is the. Scene. I mean, the problem
1: is, it's the thin end. It's the thin end of the wedge. Is it? Okay. Now, what were you going to say? No, I said, "This is the the very cinema where Mexican food was." Uh, uh, <laughs> was
0: so I think I'd rather have someone shout. Would you mind really? not doing that anymore? And I probably should have said, "Would you mind not eating?" a mexican feast in the middle of uh, the jungle book because it's rather off-putting yeah thank you so much in general there are ways of engaging which don't involve shouting aggressively which is usually
1: not a good thing yes idea. i mean i'm wondering whether it would be possible to shout politely would you mind not rustling excuse me could you not rustle thanks no could you not rustle means that sound like you're asking them to rustle no could you not rustle no but could you not rustle means could you could what could, if there, we, could you Russell? What if what if he what? was called Russell? <laughs> could you not Russell? Could you, Russell? <laughs> Russell, stop it! Back off, Russell! I've told you before. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, okay. idiot. But no, I agree. I it's, don't know.
0: You'll have to. You'll have to make it. I mean, sometimes it's appropriate to say something, and sometimes. Depending on which cinema you're in, it's best to just... It's in your
1: your favourite cinema. It's a a matter of health (laughs) and and safety safety. to not
0: say anything. Helen Jenkins, having just listened to the show since the dawn... having listened to the show since the dawn of time, I am definitely a long-term listener. But today I'm also a first-time emailer. And I'm writing to ask if sitting in the wrong cinema seats is already in the Code of Conduct, and if not, can it be added? My son Sam and his friend attended a screening of The Last Jedi last week, yeah. only to find that a gentleman and his kids were sitting in Sam's allocation. Yeah,
1: believe me, this is a really, really... Um, you tread carefully, because you're getting into a total sort of thorny area here. When God. Sam questioned him about this, his yeah. response was, just sit somewhere else. Yeah.
0: He might have said it more aggressively than that, but yeah, I just no, did that in a neutral voice. Yeah. Now, being a polite lad and not wanting an argument with someone older and bigger than him, he didn't question this, but sat somewhere else. Sam then proceeded to spend the next 30 minutes worrying that he was sitting in yeah, someone exactly. else. exactly, yeah, yeah. And he would be asked to move. Am I being a pedant here, says Helen, or is it rude and annoying when people don't stick to the seats that no, they've okay. booked? It's- Apologies if this has been brought up before, but it really gets my goat. Sam is a smart and articulate 13-year-old who's an avid listener to the show, but didn't get round to emailing himself as he was a little concerned, he might
1: not live up to the high standards expected of your teenage fan base. I'm sure he would have done. Um, I'm sure he would have done. Th- th- this is a really, really thorny issue, and it divides people. In the whole thing about allocated seating. There are some people who believe very strongly that there should be no allocated seating at all, that whoever turns up first should have the the seats that they choose, and they take particular exception to buying an allocated seat then sitting in it in a half-empty cinema and then moving to a better seat and then being told that they have to sit in their allocated seating and being shown to... That's, that's one side of the debate. The other side of the debate is, of course you should have allocated seating so you can buy your tickets in advance. I think what it comes down to is this. If you have allocated seating, it has to be properly enforced by the cinema. It should not be the business of, um, you know, of the young man in question to say, excuse me, you're in my seat. What should happen is, if a cinema is going to have it, a cinema should have you know, a proper way of, of making sure that it works out properly. Someone on on, on
0: hand there to say, you're in C5, this person's... Yeah,
1: it, to it is to do with being shown to your seat by an usher. I'm sorry, that's what it comes down to. The problem arises when you have, you know, allocated seating and then no Kardashian's... But as I said, this becomes a really heated debate because there are some people who just believe there should be no allocated seating at all. Sure, but if there is, but if and there, someone yeah, has paid for it, exactly. then you've got no argument. If there so, is... Back off out of my seat. Yeah, and if somebody is sitting in your allocated seat and, in, you know, and you, they say, excuse me, you're in my seat, the answer is, I'm really sorry, I'll move. And if that person is called Russell would that exactly. could you say
0: that could you get that in? yeah
1: I, I, okay. you know that's that's precisely the point but he, but it is he, he your your son should not have been in that position I know it is really really it is something that is really really difficult, and believe me, if you go on the internet, which I believe is very popular among young people, there is much heated discussion about this. Well, but
0: we've just sorted out what that discussion should
1: look Which like. Which is that if you're going to have allocated seating,
0: you have to have it properly there done. There, and there's the answer. There's no more debate to be had. And as I'm in my
1: allocated seat and Mark is in his, let's get on with the show. Did an usher show you to your allocated seat? No, Robin. What would you do? Robin did. OK, right. So if I was sitting in your seat, Robin would have come in and said, Excuse me, you're in the wrong seat. Yes, you're and in I the, would have said, I'm Terribly sorry. You're in the presenter's chair. Back off. <laughs> Back in goal, goalie. Exactly.
0: Anyway, here we go. Did you hear that in the weather it said it was going to be feeling fairly pleasant, which I think is a really nice thing. I I would settle for that. I think feeling fairly pleasant sounds like the support act for Radiator Cat Hammock. That is also true, but I think this show is fairly pleasant (laughs) at times. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think we should try and reach that high standard between
1: now and four o'clock. Feeling fairly pleasant? Yes. How are you at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm averagely pleasant with a tendency towards super pleasant. Precipitation is expected. What do you have lined up on your review list? Well, I'll be reviewing lots of films, Simon. I'll be reviewing Downsizing, which is a new film by Alexander Payne. There's a new Maze Runner movie out. There is a new uh, Ardman animation. I know you're a huge fan of Nick Park called the Early Man, but I'm super jealous because this morning, whilst I was doing worky type things, you... We're interviewing. I was doing a worky type thing, but the yeah, worky. I was having my. Work. You were hanging out with Paul Thomas Anderson. It was my PTA meet, meeting, which was very lovely. <laughs> How did it go? I,
0: well, it was good, and I hadn't interviewed him. Did before, you
1: sock so. it to the Hartford Valley PTA? That's what we were singing that most of the time. I bet you were. Uh,
0: and he was. Uh, he was delightful. You'll hear the interview uh, just after two thirty. Didn't he's, ask after me then. Uh, well, he said the subject well, didn't come. Up, apparently, he said he's a big fan of uh Robbie. Yep. And Sanjeev, he prefers Sanjeev as a host. Always <sighs> review <laughs> reviews. He like lo- he loves Robbies. And um, no, actually, you did come up a bit later on because
1: you're working together next week. Well, I'm ju- I'm just hosting the. They're doing a, a live performance of the score, and I'm just I'm the I'm the conduit. But anyway, he's a big fan, obviously.
0: He loves coming on the show. He that's does. All he, that's all he wanted to do. So yeah. we're going to be talking about uh, his very good week. Oscar Schmosker. He was just glad to be a guest. Mark Stevenson says... Hello,
1: Mark. Dear Doctor Strange and Doctor Beat. Doc, 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 <laughs> no, doc, doc, doctor Beat. Beat. I would oh, like... Sorry, who was Doctor Beat by? Gloria Estefan, Miami Sound Machine. Robin just said, in my head... With with unerring speed. (laughs) I would like to report
0: the identification of another syndrome to add to your ever expanding list. Okay. This is review induced blubbering syndrome. This
1: is. Go on, review. Ribs, which is ribs, okay.
0: First presented during last week's show, specifically during your discussions of Pixar's Coco. Oh, yes. Mark's description and review of the film initially induced mild sniffling. The playing of Remember Me started to crowbar the floodgates open. The email about the four-year-old girl who'd lost her granddad generated a mild free flow. What's And mean? then here comes the music again. Oh, to say OK. Remember me. And then you only went and mentioned the end of Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> at this point, a full-scale blubbering commenced. I was walking the dog at the time, so I'm supremely grateful to the weather gods, as the driving rain meant my rivulet riven face didn't portray me as the big old wuss that I clearly am. Really? As fine as it sounds, I really don't think I'll be able to handle watching Coco. I'm oh still recovering from the end of Spiderwick Chronicles. When Joan Playwright's dad reappears, I suspect that Coco would prove as devastating as listening to Billy Bragg's Tank Park salute on repeat. Oh. Thank you,
1: Mark. Anyway, the Tank Park salute reference is uh, when, from when Billy appeared on the show many That's right, moving. it was absolutely brilliant sorry, I, my initial confusion at that point, as soon as I start hearing random music I think my computer must be doing something because a couple yes. of weeks ago, if you remember, it started playing in fact, there was a weird thing in the podcast from last week, in the middle of one of my reviews, there was suddenly some weird random music, and why, why are you smiling? No, I'm, I don't know, I don't know, something odd in the podcast is a fairly standard experience Yeah, no, there was yeah. just like this uh, kind of a sudden onset of weird sound effects, I still don't know what it was but I know it wasn't me. Could have been Onset of tinnitus, that's what it is, probably. No, no, it wasn't tinnitus, it had verses and choruses and it was in the sound of somebody dismantling a shed. So that's one syndrome, so that's RIBS, so that's
0: ribs. Ribs. And here's um, Stephen French. Listening to uh, last week's review and subsequent listener correspondence for Coco, I would like to bring to your attention a further lacrimosity syndrome that I've discovered, insomnia-induced lacrimosity syndrome, or (laughs) ills. Being a long-term sufferer of insomnia, I often complete the school walk in the morning after a lack of sleep. But between dropping child one and two off this morning and then walking to work, I was listening to your bad selves and all of a sudden I was overcome with emotion listening to other church members' reactions to the film. I haven't yet seen Coco, but fully intend on rectifying the situation in the coming weeks. It would seem that ills can be so potent you don't even have to see the film for it to <laughs> take just effect. just to hear about it. Good luck like to all those insomnia sufferers out there. Mine is steadily getting better. I remain hopeful that everything will be all right in the end. That's interesting that actually, without even seeing the film therefore knowing what the emotional triggers are just
1: listening to you mark can make people weep but can i tell you a i'm going to take this opportunity to tell you an exorcist related story um, is, it, is it a is it a brief it'll be brief yeah i know it was 11 minutes there is a there was a famous when i was doing my research about the exorcist when i was really obsessing when i was really obsessing about wow. it years ago and one of the things that what the, must that have been like mm-hmm, one of the things that uh i'm not allowed to make that noise one of the things that came up was that in the wake of the Exorcist being released, there was a lot of, you know, alleged crimes that were then attributed to, um, to the, to, to the traumatizing power of the movie. But the best one was the case of a woman who had stolen a jacket and trousers from Topshop, and the reason that it, that she claimed to have done it was that she hadn't seen the Exorcist, but her daughter had. And her daughter had been to the cinema and had brought home the bad aura of the film. Ah. And the aura of the film had then <laughs> infected the whole of the household and had then caused her to go out and allegedly steal a jacket and trousers from Topshop. So it was like...
0: That's, that's good. That's, it was yeah.
1: secondary yeah. vibration. It's all down
0: to the aura, the Kia aura. The Kia
1: aura book. Your
0: projectionist tonight is Eric. Uh, Tom in London, this is Tom Brocklehurst. I'm amazed nobody has brought up your end credits debate before. This is from uh, from last week's show. Yeah. I've always stayed until the end of the credits in every film in case there is anybody with a funny name who deserves some recognition. <laughs> Just got back from seeing the brilliant three billboards, which of course feature the incredibly posh production assistant Lisa Teresa Downey Dent, uh, the man with the hungry fingers Hans Warnerberger, the drunk sound technician Mike Teeters, and other funny names not suitable for a family show. Well, we checked Lisa Teresa Downey Dent; she is definitely there. Yeah, Mike Teeters. Uh, is there, we can't find any reference to Hans Wannerberger. So it might be that if you're telling the truth, Tom in London, that maybe they were having a laugh and they were just putting... Maybe it's a fairly standard thing that they just think, if anyone has stayed five minutes into the closing credits, we're just going to put a silly name in there just to see if anybody notices.
1: Have I ever told you my story about Inventing a a person for when we couldn't find the credits for the BFI. Have I told you this? Years and years ago. I'm going to anyway. Years and years ago. Is this a long one? No, it'll be a short one. Another short one, yeah. But it's made longer by you asking that. Okay. Probably made it twice as long. I just need to. Do you want to hear this? Thank you. If you go onto the BFI database website, there is a um, there is an all round multitasker called Avangoteklu. (laughs) <laughs> and thank you very much. And that's uh, not true, uh, it is true. Avon Got a Clue was invented by me whilst I was working at the BFI many decades ago for when I literally could not find any record for who the second grip was. And uh, he has a film, well, maybe she, Avon, Avon could be anything, um, has a whole filmography of a large number of films in which. Mr or Mrs got a clue has worked
0: Hey, Mr Brocklehurst concludes I'd like a big what's up to my girlfriend Emma who converted me to your church about 18 months ago and patiently had to explain that the Jason you were always hailing wasn't the staith well the clue there Tom is where we say hello to Jason an Isaacs. And Isaacs and that's always the little <laughs> thing that narrows it down.
1: Just the giveaway isn't it? Somewhat.
0: Uh, right so the box office top 10 yes. is on the way and then uh, our PTA meeting is after 2.30. So pitch
1: perfect three. And uh, what, what was the per- perfect huge help three? Perfect huge 3 yeah yeah it's rubbish oh star wars last jedi is it number 9 um,
0: we've said all this stuff haven't we
1: well it's except to say that you know debate still rages but the film um you know continues to draw an audience i i'm i'm looking back on the kind of on the level of uh Angry. animosity that it provoked amongst people that didn't like it and i'm still still baffled by just how much people who didn't like it really, really got off their bikes about it. And I'm still wondering about whether or not people genuinely think that critics who liked the film, in which I was one, were in the pay. I don't think I like, any... I think, like, two or three people think you're in the pay of Disney. But it's just weird that anyone would even think that. I mean, I think the, film's, I think the film works really well, and I really enjoyed it, and I've now seen it three times. Insidious, The Last Key, is at number eight? Hmm. Well... It's not as terrible as it could have been, um, and considering where we are now in the story, in the pre-prequel kind of... Uh, it was, you know, it wasn't press-screened. I went along to see it uh, first thing in the morning, and, it you know, it's completely unremarkable and hugely uninventive and brings nothing new to the table, but it wasn't terrible. It was just... Hmm. Uh, number seven is The Commuter. So here we go with an email Here from, we go. With, uh, this is Mike Lambert.
0: After checking with my wife five times that she wasn't interested in coming, I attended a showing of The Commuter with my best friend... <laughs> How best do you think that conversation went? Yeah, you don't want to come and see The Commuter? No, <laughs> no. And my best man, Adrian, on Tuesday at the Trowbridge, Trowbridge, Odeon, beg your pardon, Trowbridge Odeon, as we both uh, thought from viewing the trailer in our previous trip to the flicks that it would be an action film we would enjoy... Uh, Also, we had uh, those endless cards itching in our pockets, screaming to be used as much as possible. The film itself delivered what we expected from the trailer: script all over the place with a ludicrous plotline, sub characters that were waiting to get bumped off or have meltdowns, and well-known actors popping up for the paychecks. At the beginning, I kept focusing on Mr. Neeson's hair color, wondering what the name of the dye was. Yeah, but that only lasted twenty minutes until the film started to warm up. Also, even though the main character kept reminding us that he was a sixty-year-old, he still fought like a twenty-something in the fight scenes and seemed to have limitless energy and resilience. But we still loved it. It delivered what we wanted after a long day at work, an an uncomplicated plot, plenty of action with enough breaks so it's not relentless, questions popping up which kept you following with ease and a leading man who had his failings and purpose and not a generic two-dimensional character. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Do you want to hear
1: from me? It's another rhetorical question. Okay. The problem with The Commuter is this. It sets up this premise at the beginning, which is: Would you do this? You know, would you unknowingly shop a fellow commuter, not knowing what would happen to them, but for financial reward? Because oh, Liam's character, who's the commuter, he needs money. He needs money, but does he need it that badly? We all he has to do is one simple thing, so a tiny little thing. He has to find the person and point them out. That's all he has to do. But he doesn't know what the consequences of it are. Oh, interesting setup. And then ten minutes in, they go. All right, that doesn't work. Do the thing about go get his family, go, you know, hold the gun, do all that. Yeah, to be hitting somebody. Yeah, it's bashing the person on the head. Yeah, that's absolutely. Remember that one we did before? Not do Not stop, night, fight that one. Yeah, do a bit of that. Thank you. All right, Liam, go on, do the punch of the thing. And, the, and you could just go, what happened to that setup, which you spent such a lot of time setting up? That sequence in which Vera Farmiga sits there and literally explains the setup at great length, and then five minutes later. Okay, that says that doesn't work. Let's do let's do the taken thing. What does he do? Who's he taken? take the other people. Get them to do that. It'll be fine. It's rubbish. Paul Carenza in Guildford
0: says, Dear driver and passenger, who's driving the train? Who cares? <laughs> At one point, Liam asks, Is this seat taken? If he meant, is this film taken? No, it's <laughs> not.
1: <laughs> that I'm sorry, that's genius. That's abso- who's this from? Paul Carenza in okay, Guildford. OK, And that... Ladies and gentlemen, is the email of the week. When a major plot point
0: is Gasp, you've got a monthly travel card, that means, oh my, you know, <laughs> Liam's latest is on the wrong
1: track. <laughs> it belies a Liam Neeson ticket puncher. That's what they should have called seems it. seems
0: to have actually never actually ridden on a train. We, we don't talk to each other on trains. Catch your next commute, Walt. No, <laughs> no, we don't do that. I and mean, if you're trying for Arnie style quips after pushing someone off a train, do better than. What happened to him? He got off. Wish I had. The stop before
1: the cinema. <laughs> That's brilliant. Is this you, seat Paul. taken? No, no, neither's the film. <laughs> That's really good. It's very good. So, uh, thank you, Paul. You, we'll put. But, um, I'm going to put you over here, yeah, which is in, where the in email the good of pile. the week Email goes. of the week pile. Oh, is that going to be a new feature
0: now? Email of the, email week. Of the week. And you win a special um, self-financed prize. Very good. Okay, That
1: means you pay for it. We just... Laugh, laugh. Number six, three billboards outside Epping Forest. Oh, no, I'm, you know, a huge fan of this. I, it's the interesting thing with the Oscar race is that it's one of those films that because it has divided audiences, um, it probably means that it, you know that's always very difficult when it it comes to, you know, Oscar nominations and Oscar wins, having a divisive audience is always very difficult. I think the film's really good. I think Frances McDormand is terrific. And I think that she is going to win um, uh, best actress. I, I do understand why some people take against it, but having now seen the film again, three times, I think it's just really well handled, really well written, really well played by the ensemble cast. And As I said before, it manages to be, you know, both tragic and comic without undermining either of those two things together. And McDormand is just brilliant. So I'm a Have you seen it yet?
0: No, but I've got a question for you. Do you you think you could argue that an awful lot of important, big, exciting films are divisive?
1: Yes, they are. Just by their very nature. And that's one of the reasons why, when it comes to Oscars, particularly Oscar wins, what happens is that the... Best films don't tend to win. What usually happens is that if you've got a field, like, for example, this year, in the Best Picture category, you've got Three Billboards, Shape of Water, Post, Ladybird, Get Out. What happens is that the films that are really provocative will split votes, and it's often the one that's less provocative, that everyone likes but nobody dislikes, that ends up winning the prize. So, I mean, you know, the classic example is Exorcist not winning and The Sting winning. But then if you think about other films like Crash or um, the year that we were in Hollywood when uh, Shakespeare in Love won, or the classic example is Driving Miss Daisy, that the thing that often wins is not the thing that people feel most passionately about, but the thing about which people feel least aggrieved so, if you have. But then a f- Paddington 2 would win Best Picture. Well, yeah, exactly. Although it's actually not up there for Best Picture. But when you look at the Best Picture contenders, the films that some people love and some people hate, which are generally the things that. I mean, I, I do think that great movies do divide audiences, and that's why they don't win prizes. Whereas good movies kind of find a space in the middle, and they tend to win prizes. Having said all that, tune in in two months' time or however long the way it is, and it turns out I'm talking rubbish.
0: I can't believe that that would ever be the case. Joe Surtees, I've no doubt that Three Billboards is a brilliant film, however, it seemed to me like a diamond. Crystalline perfection, sharp-edged but cold. At every point in the film, you could sense the mind of the director operating clinically, placing each piece of a puzzle into place with surgeon-like detachment. As a viewer, this meant it was often difficult to stop yourself dispassionately dissecting the events on screen as an almost academic exercise. For me, the most clear example of the intelligent but essentially jellied approach was in the humour... Again, I wouldn't dispute that the film is funny, but only in the sense that you could recognise the cleverness of the dialogue, not in a way that made you laugh. I'm aware that this is probably not the opinion of the majority, and who knows, it might be. I return to the film in a few years and realise how wrong I was. After all, this happened with "There Will Be Blood" and "Children of Men," but I
1: thought it might be of interest to sprinkle some dissent. Yeah, I mean that's you know that's beautifully written, and I mean I don't agree with it, and I do suspect that if you go back and look at the film, it may it may ring differently. in, in the very same way that if I go back and look at. The Greatest Showman again. It's possible that I will see some of what our, you know, listeners keep telling me I've missed. Because the first time I saw Greatest Showman, I just, well, the only time I've seen Greatest Showman, I just thought it was all over the shop. Well,
0: the Greatest. I mean, we can we can skip to that if you, if you like we have got um, uh, Jumanji which is at five Greatest Showman is at four
1: yeah Jumanji I think we've covered it's much better than anybody could have expected when you imagine you know, how, you know, who yeah. who wanted a remake reboot sequel at that point and yet it turns out to be really good but The Greatest Showman yeah. has
0: clearly found its audience and there was a piece in the paper today and it's the single and they're, they're sing-along versions and they're selling out at,
1: of uh, Greatest Showman cinema, which greatest is weird showman. because I thought it didn't have a memorable tune in it
0: yeah well um, it's got Oscar Nomd obviously uh, for uh, original song, and cl- clearly these there are sellout editions of this film, which
1: are the sing-along versions. Okay, I think, and it's there at number four. It's still at number. Yeah, four. yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm really surprised, but I, as I have had so many people get in touch to say you're completely wrong about this. It's really good, and I suppose I should go back and look at it again. Um, the, I you know go
0: back with a pizza. The good lady, professor, her indoors and uh, when you're feeling really buzzy, so you've had a, uh, a few uh, ginger beers and, and you're in that kind of... I, you know what? I really feel like a sing-along. Maybe maybe that's the time to go and see it.
1: OK. What do you but, think? Well, here's what I think is this. You've seen it, right? Yes. You want to see it again? No, not really, no. But then I just obviously missed out. But maybe I'm going to have a few ginger beers. I'll and... tell you what, and I'll make you... I'll... I will make you yet another emoji movie agreement, which you so horribly reneged on. I will go and see The Greatest Showman again if you come with me. Okay. Okay? So it's really down to you. You could always just go on your own as you're the critic and I'm the host. It, no, but in this particular case, I've already seen the film and I've passed my critical judgment. This is now something else which is to do with the programme and our listeners saying, okay. you're both wrong. Top three, then, uh, number three. Mm, I noticed that you didn't say yes, you just moved ab- on. Absolutely didn't the say The listeners, yes. however... I am very busy. ...heard. 2.25... Becky Howcroft.
0: Uh, what are we is, uh, on the Post? We were on the subject of the Post. The post. I'm happy to say yep. that the film was excellent. The pace was brisk, the script was sharp, and it was refreshing to be reminded that you don't need to blow things up to keep people gripped for the best part of two hours. I was particularly impressed with Meryl Streep's performance. Maybe it was just the hormones, as I'm 38 weeks pregnant, but I found myself close to tears watching the quiet resilience and courage of Kate Graham as she constantly found herself in rooms full of suits with men trying to tell her what to do. Street managed to convey the scale of the battles Graham had to fight in those days in an extremely powerful way, whilst avoiding the histrionics, flagellation and bodily transformation that Oscar (laughs) nominees often seem to have to undergo to gain recognition. Also, I saw this film with my dad, who expressed an interest in going to the cinema for the first time in my entire life. And I'm (laughs) 33. So this definitely added to the experience. Uh, Chris Hickman in Nottingham. Just returned from The Post at the delightful Broadway Cinema in Nottingham, which is a delightful cinema. It is. Very comfortable seats. What to make of it? Hanks and Streep are no, never less than watchable. I also particularly enjoyed Bob Kirk and Bradley Whitford on the big screen. But I found myself beginning to compare this unfavourably to Spotlight as the film wore on. I'm not sure if it's the Spielberginess of the production, but it felt a little too showy. The music too intrusive. This is not to say it wasn't entirely watchable, but it didn't provide me with the same emotional punch as Spotlight. Thank you, Chris. It's uh, The post is co-written by yes. Josh Singer, who wrote Spotlight. Yes, absolutely. Which explains that
1: connection to some extent. Plus also de- debut writer Liz Hanna, who... Just amazing. That's your first I know. Play. I know. No, absolutely brilliant. Um, Shall I? Are you, are yeah, you, yeah, you OK, on. so I mean, I really like it. I think that it runs right into All the President's Men. And, of course, I have a, this deep fondness as I talked to before because of, for very personal reasons, All the President's Men is very important to me because my dad sneaked me into the cinema to see it when I was 12 years old because he thought it was an important film to see and that really stayed with me. That could easily have worked against it because if you have a film which is kind of referring to, as this very specifically does, a film that you love... Often, that film sort of seems to pale by comparison, but this didn't. I do think Meryl Streep is terrific in it, as indeed is Tom Hanks, but an entire ensemble cast. One of the things I found most delicious about it was the sort of fetishy stuff about the linotype machine and the hot press printing, which, I mean, I you could feel Spielberg, who for ages and ages held out for 35mm. I mean, for a long, long time, he was kind of great, you know, holding on to 35 and I just thought those sequences were, you know, waiting for the presses to turn, waiting for the phone call so that you can press go on the presses. It, it, it called back an age. Plus, it is... There is something... I mean, obviously, it's very relevant today because it's a film about protecting the press from attacks from from corrupt authority. And I have to say, watching those scenes of uh, Nixon's corruption just seemed like a bygone age of innocence. Uh, Michael Hanks, No Relation
0: I imagine. Meryl Streep's performance poured forth with such emotional and intellectual clarity I feel duty bound to root for her to get the fourth Best, Actra- Best Actress Oscar. On the film as a whole I couldn't help but make comparisons to Spotlight and found The Post a superior film in every respect. Spielberg's film crackles with energy really drawing me into the tough decisions being made. I also thought The Post did a much better job of balancing the personal story of its core characters with the bigger political story surrounding them. Forget Spotlight, or indeed all the President's Men, The Post is now, for me, the, the investigative journalism movie to beat. Uh,
1: Michael, thank you. Uh, Darkest Hour is it number two. Gary Oldman's going to win the Best um, Actor Oscar, um, which is overdue because he is a, a brilliant actor. I think the film itself is deeply flawed, and you and I have discussed at length the problem with the tube scene, and I think that the reason that that's such a stumbling block is because it's not that it just, it's not the one thing that trips the film up. It's indicative of all the things that trip the film up. I do up. think
0: it's a lot better than you have I know, I,
1: I know, I know, that's fine that's absolutely fine, but um, you're wrong uh,
0: Number one is Coco, I think uh, let me just check. Uh... So huge outpourings of love for Coco. I oh, know you're wrong, I was just checking that in, just, okay. in, on, just in on the news, just in breaking on news I'm wrong. Anyway, Coco, yes absolutely, uh, let, I'll just do a couple Yeah, and go then, ahead. And then well, I mean, yeah,
1: I, I need to say there's nothing else I need to say other than, you know, I thought it was lovely, but I do want people who see it to go and get the DVD of Book of Life, because if you liked Coco, you will like Book of Life as well and I want that film to be recognised.
0: Christina Perez in Sheffield last weekend, and without having caught up on your show, I took my half-Mexican four-year-old daughter to see Coco. What an extraordinary experience it was. I have to say, from the first few minutes, I knew I was going to have trouble holding back tears. I had my reservations, as it's usually the case when going to see a film about, or even just featuring, Dia de Muertos, which is Day of the Dead, yes? In spite of the reassurance of my sister who had seen the film and loved it. They were all forgotten by the time little Miguel finished recounting his family's backstory. I've now heard Mark's review of the film, and I agree, it plucks at your heartstrings in the most beautiful way. But to me, the most impressive and unexpected thing is that although the story and themes are universal, they are dealt with in a way that feels truly Mexican. I believe this is in part due to the way it portrays genuine elements of our culture without ever explaining or over-interpreting them. I think it manages to capture with grace and innocence the dichotomy of joy and heartache that has come to be associated with being Mexican, but that is so difficult to explain without evoking stereotypes. It was an incredibly moving experience to be able to see all this through my daughter's eyes and have this as a resource for her to feel closer to her heritage. Mostly, though, it's a beautiful film that everyone should watch.
1: It is worth pointing out that um, after some initial misgivings, when it was first announced that Coco was being made... Um, that Pixar went out of their way to make sure that they were going to do the film in a culturally sensitive way because originally there was some story about Disney attempting to to um, to trademark Day of the Dead um, and Good then luck with that. If, yeah exactly and but they very quickly uh, turned that around and they ended up getting people like Lalo Alcaraz who now is uh, credited as cultural consultant on the film because they realised that it was really important if they were going to do this they needed to do it properly and they needed to do it in a way that actually did understand and properly pay tribute to the heritage i think it's paid off and it's one of those great cases in which it was it was really clear from the outset that if they did it wrong it was not going to be well-received. But if they did it right, they were going to have, you know, something special, and that's what they did. And, they, you know, specifically going out and making sure that they were speaking to the right people, that they were properly researching it, that they weren't just trampling on a culture they didn't understand. But getting people in- involved who did understand the culture, I think it has really paid off.
0: Helen Nicole, after listening to your review of Coco, then seeing the trailer on TV, I remarked to my nine-year-old son, shall we go and see it? It's supposed to be brilliant. To which he replied, no. You told me the Emoji movie was rubbish, and it wasn't. (laughs) It was amazing, so I don't trust anything you say about films. The world is now upside down. Later, he remarked that the Emoji film was his second favourite. My husband and myself are actually distraught. We have taught him nothing. Although, that being said, his number one film is Star Wars, so maybe there's some hope. It is, it's, you know, it's discouraging if your kids disagree with you, but that's get used to the rest yeah, get, of, get your life get used Helen. to it, yeah. That's it's, the way of, it's going to be.
1: Look forward to playing them records that you think are brilliant and them taking, you know, I was going to say taking the needle off the record and then realizing that that's not even, not that even in the running anymore. So, Paul Thomas Anderson is coming up, but also reviews of what are we going to do before three? I think we're going to do uh, the Cinema Travellers before three.
0: Okay. And uh, we're talking movies between now and four o'clock, and it's time for our special guest. We talked about Paul Thomas Anderson a lot on the show. We have his movies over the years, but he doesn't generally make himself available. Well, actually, his films, when they they kind of, they're not,
1: there aren't that many of them because they're like works of art yeah, when, so he, he, when he delivers yes, them. Yes, he takes time to do it, uh, and, uh, you know, and then so when, when it happens, it's, it's, it's an event.
0: And here is part one the overture. <laughs> Maybe the Because the movie doesn't come out till next week. Yeah. So after you've heard the interview, we will talk around it, but we won't be talking about it specifically. So you'll hear from Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, the director of Phantom Thread, in just a second. First of all, uh, a clip from the film where Daniel Day-Lewis and his sister, played by uh, Leslie Manville, are having breakfast.
2: Would you like me to ask Alma to leave?
0: No. Why? Well, if you're going to make her a ghost go ahead and do it but please don't let her sit around waiting for you i'm very fond of her
2: oh you're very fond of her are you
1: well in that case
0: no don't turn it on me i don't want your cloud on my head shut up you can shut right up don't pick a fight with me you certainly won't come out alive i'll go right through you and it'll be you who ends up on the floor understood and that's a clip from phantom thread i'm delighted to say it's director paul thomas anderson is with us. Paul, how are you, sir? Very good. How are you? How how would you describe your week so far? Uh, Is today Thursday? Friday. I'm thinking mainly of the nominations, really. That's what I was thinking. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. God,
2: it felt like Tuesday to me, honestly. Um, My week's been very good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you must be... So, you know, best actor Today's Friday already? It is. Oh, God. Picture, supporting actress, uh, original music score, costume design... Six nominations, that must give you a little spring in your step as you're walking through London streets.
2: Yeah, for sure. Nobody seems to care on the streets though. I keep I like walking around like like with a sign over my head saying like, right, everybody? And no one
0: seems to <laughs> they don't just walk tend- right past me. You're not tempted to go up to people and say, "Don't you know I've got six Oscar nominations?"
2: Yeah, I went to the movies last night, and I I was hoping to be recognized in the lobby. There was like Phantom Thread, like five star reviews all the way around, and the and the guy was like, "Right, just give me your money." I don't. I was hoping to be recognized, but it didn't. It what didn't did go my way. I still had to pay full price for the. What did ticket. you see? What did you see? I saw downsizing, and I was nuts, terrific. I mean, really, I loved the first hour. I sort of. Then it just got weirder and weirder and weirder, and um, in a good way, <laughs> I think. In a good way, I kind of I, I wasn't sure at the time, and then I walked out of there, and I'm really happy with the, with the weirdo places that it went. It was really, and, great. and
0: no one said, "Excuse me, are you Paul Thomas Anderson?" Unfortunately, Can... not. Okay, no, right. it was. Uh... Well, let's well let's do that talk. Let's do that, <laughs> that talk now. That clip that we just played uh, with Daniel Day Lewis and Leslie Manville having having one of their breakfasts together. Leslie Manville, in incredible. Uh, form and basically bossing uh, that scene. Just, ex- just explain a little bit about the story of this and 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 what that scene tells us about the characters.
2: Well, we have a kind of um, mile markers through our film of of breakfasts with the woodcock siblings. You know, and you can kind of measure the film by how breakfast goes. We have one early on that establishes the tone of the house. This one is about three quarters of the way through when the dutiful. Cyril Leslie played by Leslie Manville turns up the volume on Reynolds and, and basically you, all, all the truth comes out about her being the elder sibling who is really <laughs> in charge right. you know and if you've ever had a fight if you have a brother or a sister if you've ever been in one of those matches um, you know that it is as brutal as it gets to have a fight with a sibling like because a sibling can say things that no one else can and they know just how to get right at the center of what is gonna cut you down or put you in place. Yeah.
0: So And these two have a have an empire. Really? Yeah. Don't they how how would you uh, and so uh so he is uh an extraordinary dressmaker. She how would you characterize uh their relationship? What does she do and what does she bring? She kinda of runs everything really. She runs
2: everything um but she well she spoils him. You know she allows him to be a spoiled baby and that's what keeps the engine running of this of this place. She probably just inherited a relationship that he had with his mother, which was basically, you're the golden child who can sew, who can do all this stuff, you're this creative type, so let me make sure your feet never touch the ground. So his elder sister has carried that mantle for him and allowed him to behave in certain ways that are really, they're unacceptable in real life, but in the world of this theater, of this house, this couture house, they're perfectly
0: acceptable. We're in 1950s London. Why is it? Why did you set it here? And why did you set it in that time? They're tied together because that's the heyday.
2: You know, after the war, sort of what happened with Paris and London in fashion is the golden era of couture, all those we still look at all these dresses today. There are museum tours about them. I mean, it's like the golden age of Hollywood. That's the golden age of dressmaking. So it could have been Paris or it could have been London because those are the two epicenters. And I've always wanted to work here. I love it here. I mean, just the walk today. I couldn't explain my love for it here, but I've always wanted to work here. gives you access to
0: great actors as well. And you you wrote this with Daniel Daylitz. Yeah. how, How does that process work? Do you write... A bunch of scenes and then say what do you think or does he write some scenes how, how does that
2: no that the first I write scenes hand them over I think at first it was a collection of a, of a, a lot of scenes that didn't really have a story it was sh- pretty shapeless and when it started to have some shape after about like 25 or 30 pages I showed that to Daniel got his input which initially was sort of more silent input. I think he, as any good collaborator, he was just sort of waiting to see a little bit more of where I'd go. And probably about halfway through the story, he really started to chime in and come up with suggestions. And uh, it was a proper collaboration of going back and forth. And then we kind of worked through
0: the end of the story together. Does he anglicize it at all? Does he say, no, I might, you know, I'm English, I'm not going to say that?
2: Yeah, like, I, w- I would say, um, I think Alma says, I'm mad. I thought, oh, because that's a good line, because she's mad. And he says, I think you mean angry. You know, I said, right, OK. <laughs> oh, OK. That's one, that's one way. Ill. I think I'm going to be ill. I think I'm going to be sick. I, think, I, I would write,
0: I think I'm going to throw up. I don't, know, I, said, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think Reynolds would say, I'm going to throw up. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so uh, the other woman in the movie is, of course, played by Vicky Creeps, who plays Alma, who you've just uh, just mentioned. What is it that attracts Reynolds to Alma? What is it that attracts Reynolds to Alma? Um,
2: what are you doing? I'm just getting I'm getting a
0: finger signal as to how many minutes are left. The answer is eight. Okay. <laughs> um,
2: so I could fill a minute of silence thinking about this question. Look, Daniel okay. Day-Lewis
0: can be a silent contributor. You cannot okay. because that um, doesn't make great radio.
2: <laughs> exactly. Pauses on the radio, like you could drive a truck through. It's not... Uh, Daniel, Daniel will get away with it, but I'm afraid you won't. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, he sees, he sees, he sees. Um, she's cute to look at. She's beautiful, um, and that's the, the initial thing. And she stumbles and she blushes, and there's this kind of instant attraction. But very quickly, it becomes something else. It becomes um, a challenge and and, an opponent, I think he's in a position where he's probably turned on by love as a a sport. You know, I think he's probably looking for somebody to um, go against him Mm. and treat the relationship
0: as if it was a tennis match or a chess match or a wrestling match, whatever it was. And we're back to breakfast um, because he's ordering uh, a breakfast. And the way... Daniel Day-Lewis orders breakfast is a seduction scene. It, maybe it's just the way he says, and sausages. But everyone, I think that was a great line. And only he could have given it the, the power that he does.
2: It's funny, isn't it? I remember being on the set and thinking, I can't believe how much mileage we're getting
0: out of ordering <laughs> breakfast. Right. This, is, this is really <laughs> astonishing. <laughs> yeah, And actually, just on the subject of food, which, is, which you've hinted at talking about breakfast, but food is a theme throughout the film, And when he's hungry, he's happy. Yeah. And when he loses his appetite, he's an angry man. Yes. I don't want to go any further, but maybe you can just add some colour into that.
2: Add some colour to that. Well, yeah. um, He clearly has a large appetite in general for everything. I think what makes him a good character is that he's the kind of character that could eat a breakfast that large probably every single day and still be um, rail thin, which says a lot to Mm. you, you know, which says a lot, like how much he must be burning per square inch as is pretty clear the
0: intensity that he ca- that he has over his life and yeah. his work you've had experience in this before of course very successfully how do you direct daniel do you just wind him up and let him go how do, how, do, how does that relationship work it's a little bit like
2: that it's you know a lot of the work i feel is you do beforehand you do in in the preparation and the talking about it and the formation of the script so much of that work happens in the year leading up to starting and once you start it becomes very minimal. Um, Usually what the decisions that we make each day were really quite simple which is like what color bow tie to wear you know that was those were the big decisions that we would make. He takes a, a ball and runs with it very strongly the most you have to direct sometimes you have to sort of you just say oh it's getting a little slow or you're rushing it or something very simple like that that's kind of the extent of direction it's all beforehand it's all that constant kind of investigation of the possibilities of the way a scene might go the possibilities mm. of a voice or a character or how he dresses how he eats breakfast what he orders for breakfast all that stuff you've you've dealt with beforehand and the good news is is that you don't once you, once you start shooting you can you get on with the practical business of doing it it's funny it, it can be labored before it's a year of very detailed work but it's funny just how simple it is once you start shooting it's really mm-hmm. kind of um we don't i don't think either one of us likes to belabor a scene or
0: do it too many times and so we try to move swiftly once we start and when did you know that he was going to retire and that this was apparently his final picture
2: after we finished he he made his announcement. How did you feel? Sad, strange, yeah, for sure. Um, do you believe him? I do, but then again, aren't announcements of retirement made so that they can be broken? Maybe
0: ask Elton John.
2: <laughs> oh, did did Elton retire
0: <laughs> again? But he's got a farewell tour for three years. So is that right?
2: Yeah. Well, he's got a lot of a lot of ground to cover.
0: Can I mention uh, just before we finish that? Um, Johnny Greenwood getting a, an Oscar nomination for his score at last. Um, yeah. Because there are many people who would say he should have been here before, but, you know, there's a technicality, and he wasn't included for, uh, for Blood. And just, can you just, you, you must be thrilled for him, and you've worked with him many times. What is it that he brings to your music Well, I just want
2: to say that it, it, almost better than Johnny getting nominated for an Oscar is the thought of Johnny in a tuxedo. <laughs> that and even e- yet even better than that is the thought of the possibility of him having to give an acceptance speech is is has made me so happy. Um I mean I would pay top dollar to, to, to see him get up there and have no idea how that would go.
0: <laughs> Many people thought he should have been nominated. Yeah, for, he should have
2: for sure. But then
0: there was that technicality and yeah. and so he wasn't included. Um, because some of the music had been heard before, or something like that. But anyway, the fact that he's in there yeah. now must be enormously rewarding and satisfying to you.
2: Uh, hugely. There's always been a kind of knock on the Academy branch saying that they're they're a bit. There's a bit of a snobbery going on, and there's, that you they kind of look at a rock musician and think, "Oh, he's not. He's faking it." And um, Johnny is so far from faking it. He's he's obvi- he, as you know. And a lot of people around here know he's a proper musical course, yeah. genius, prodigy rather. So it's amazing that he's recognized, and he should be because it's a great, great score, and he worked his ass off. I mean, I mean, there's so much music in the movie. So yeah, and 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 it was and there was a bummer on there. Will be blood. It was really a bummer. The Academy had had to deal with a couple of years before a score that had been utilized. Um, in other ways, and they, they gave it an award. So there was these kind of insane restrictions about where music had been played before. I mean, we used a portion of a, of a, of a piece that Johnny wrote for the, uh, as a BBC commission that, like, five people heard, you know, and we sort of took that. And Anyway, it's great
0: that they recognised him this time. Yeah. Uh, well, congratulations on, uh, on all the nominations. Paul Thomas Anderson, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. The Phantom Thread comes out next week, so it'll be properly reviewed next week. At, yeah. the, at the end of the, the interview, it was about another minute before he disappeared for, the, for his next interview, he was just talking about this period, which he calls his incubation period, when he's thinking up new ideas and thinking up new stories, and it was quite clear he was relishing every single second. Yeah. He was enjoying being in London, he, as you could hear from the interview. He just loves being in the UK anyway, but he's, in, he's just thinking up ideas. There's no budget, there's no restrictions, no-one's asking him any questions, so he seemed very happy.
1: I remember Terry Gilliam saying this thing that, the you know, the, 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 the different periods of movie making, you know, the period when you're thinking it out, the period when you're writing it, the period when you're shooting it and then the editing room. And he said that every day that you're shooting a movie is like slightly killing a part of your dream because you envisage the movie in this period that Paul Thomas Anson would now be in, you know, the incubation period. You envisage a movie and you have a vision of it. And then day one, you start shooting. And then every day, that's what Gilliam said, you don't quite get what you thought you were going to get. So it gets more and more and then you get you get to the end of it, and you've kind of, and then you get into the editing room, and then you rediscover it, and then you rediscover all the things that you didn't realize you had got. When you didn't get the thing you were trying to get, you ended up getting something else instead. I think it's, a, it is a, there's a really interesting kind of snake like arc to that process. But so many people have said that, that similar thing, you know, the, the, the initial joy of the conception of a film followed by the torture of actually going out and shooting it and then the rebirth of being in the editing room and going oh no there is something there even if the, if the, even if the thing that's there turns out to be not what you thought even if it's like anhedonia it's a different thing. I wonder if uh,
0: knowing that Daniel Day Lewis is retiring, and you had a, it was a slightly ambiguous yeah. answer because he yeah. says yes, he's serious, but you know he could always be persuaded. You do look at the film in a different way because you look at the performance of Daniel Day Lewis and think, is is this actually the last time? Well,
1: the, the thing that I'd say that's significant is if this is his last performance, what a high to go out on. Do you know what I mean? It's not like finishing up doing Marlon Brando in. The island of Doctor Moreau or something. I mean you know to, to 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 do that performance and then say, And ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Now I'm going to go back to making shoes.
0: One of the things I really liked, we could talk about this next week when you do a proper okay, review yeah. is the accent that he has, and I didn't oh, talk about yeah. it Paul Thomas Anderson because I think he would think it was just an English accent, but I reckon if Daniel Day-Lewis say, he, it's a fantastic voice that he's, that he's found yeah, for I think Paul Thomas
1: judgment. Anderson would know that that voice was... because the, the voice is so much part of the character. Yeah, it's beautiful. The closeness, the, the insularity of it, the precision of it is so much to do with the character, and you just know that Daniel Day-Lewis would have found that voice as the key to the character. Phantom Thread comes out next <clears throat> Friday.
0: Full review uh, will be on next week's... Uh, show it's five minutes to three o'clock. What what is out there
1: Okay, well suite? let's do this is a film which is showing at the Bertha Dog House, which is um uh, in London and I think you can have <laughs> you're gonna have to really look for it in other places, excuse me. <clears throat> where where is it? The Bertha Doghouse. House. The it's, Bertha Dog House. Doghouse. House. Oh, Doghouse. Yes. And um it's uh it's a it's Today is Dave Norris's birthday. You know, Dave Norris is the, the last projectionist. projectionist. Yeah, last projectionist. Happy standing. birthday, Dave. Happy birthday 26. to the great Dave Norris. And it's very uh, fitting, therefore, that this film has just come out. It's directed by Shirley Abraham and Amit uh, Malashia, and it is a film about... The travelling uh, cinema of India, which for a long time there are these uh, sort of shows, of circuses, been taking movies to faraway destinations, putting up tents, showing them from 35 millimetre projectors. But now, after decades of this happening, what's happening is that the prints are drying up, the projectors are running out of steam. And the film is basically about cinema and about 35 millimeter and about the way in which cinema is changing. I mean, what's lovely is that you have, on the one hand, these, you know, like circus like tents and, you know, screens erected in a makeshift but, you know, wonderful fashion and these projectors which are like, almost old traction engines that have been kept going by constant care, constant attention, constantly being, uh, you know, renovated like cars. And one of the characters in this film is a guy who's dedicated his life to maintaining and making projectors and, you know, keeping them running. But what's happening is that the prints are old, the prints are tired, now we're moving into a new digital age, and you know now you can have a digital projector, maybe that can come along and do the job, but as we see, a digital projector, yeah, it's all great when it works, and then when it doesn't work, you can't do anything about it. You haven't got an internet link to download a bit, it, you can't do anything about it at all. So, On the one hand, it is this beautiful sort of love song to the origins of cinema, because remember, cinema comes out of circuses and fairgrounds and Magic Lantern shows and all those sort of things. On the other hand, I look forward to the future of cinema. And it's, like I said, this kind of elegiac uh, song is the best way of describing it, about the nature of cinema, about people seeing... Uh, films in these sort of uh, you know, great big open auditoriums and being just thrilled by these the still images of people's faces looking at these moving images... One of the things they do is that wherever the, the projector goes, it's blessed. It, their prayers are said. Incense is used. It's a kind of almost like a magical incantation, which is so much to do with what the origins of cinema were about. You know, light passing through celluloid is somehow a magical thing. There's a lovely sequence in which they're repairing a piece of film and they get the 35mm film strip and stick it together with tape. And then, in order to make the sprocket holes, the incense which is being waved over it is used to burn holes where the sprockets would go, which is just this wonderful kind of combination of on the one hand something mechanical on the other hand something that is profoundly spiritual and it is about the magic and timelessness of cinema it is about an age which is coming to an end but also having you know a kind of rebirth i was thinking that we were talking recently about um you know the highlands and islands and the cinema machine going out there and taking cinema to places yeah. where they don't have it and this is very much in a sort of similar vein but for me we talked before about a thing called The Last Projectionist it's about the changing of an era about you know this, the way in which cinema has always been tied up with the mechanism the mechanics of the celluloid passing through you know this beam of light, and now that is turning into something else. And whilst watching it, I was enchanted, I was moved, I was transported. I thought it was—I thought it was a really, really lovely piece of work. As I said, you know, uh, you, it, it's not going to be something you're, you're going to find very easily, but it's really well worth seeing. And how how lovely that it's out on the same day as the birthday of Dave Norris, who I've always sort of thought, you know, last projection is What's standing it called again. It's called the Cinema Travellers. I'm going to have to really hunt that down. That might be quite. a I tricky think, one. as far as I can tell at the moment, there's one venue that I know it's playing in. We'll put details on the on the Witt entertainment uh, Twitter feed, and if we can find other places that it's playing as well. I just realised what I wanted to talk to Paul Thomas Anderson about
0: was the soundtrack of Magnolia and his love of Supertramp. Yes, <laughs> which unfortunately we never got
1: around to because. Time is somewhat limited. Okay. Anyway,
0: in the next hour, what have you got?
1: Uh, we've got uh, Downsizing, which Paul Thomas Anderson popped out to see, but nobody yes. jumped up to him and said, congrats on the nomination, and Early Man, the new film from Hardman. Downsizing in just a second.
0: But another email from Simon Quilter okay, from the Norfolk branch of the Church of Wittertainment. I do think Simon Quilter sounds like he's a roguish Lothario somehow. <laughs> Hi. I'm Simon Quilton. I say. <laughs> anyway, he's the gentleman who emailed us last week about the conundrum over whether to take his 15-year-old son James yes. to see The Post or Darkest Hour, remember? Yes, that's, I do remember that, yeah, and I said so, go see The Post, and right? I said go see Darkest Hour and then, if possible, just see both of them because yeah. they're both worth seeing. A terrific double bill. You both provided excellent advice says Simon, on uh, both movies, which James and I listened to on our way to the cinema today. We only had time to see one movie, and as I was happy to see either film, I delegated the decision to James. He decided on Darkest Hour on the basis that the subject matter covers events which took place in our country rather than America. Much has already been said about Gary Oldman's performance, and he did not disappoint. He inhabited the role so completely that you could almost smell the cigar smoke. Having heard Mark's review... I was concerned over whether the tube scene would ruin the film for us, and I agree it was a misstep and jarred with the rest of the movie. It appeared to have been shoehorned into the film to build drama where there was already drama enough. Interestingly, though, James had not heard Mark's review, and his 15-year-old's verdict on the scene was that it was cool. Overall, James thoroughly enjoyed the film and declared it awesome, which is high praise indeed. The one disappointment, apart from minor code violations in the next row, involving a mobile phone, was that out of an audience of, by my estimation, 200... I can only see one other child other than James. Does this reflect a lack of interest in serious movies from children or perhaps parents not bothering to encourage their offspring to venture beyond superhero movies or shoot 'em ups Anyway, next uh, weekend we're off to see The Post at the Chroma Movie Movieplex. Very good. Anyway, so a personalised... But, you know, that, that went pretty much the way you'd expect yeah, exactly. it to. And he probably, Mark probably thinks he's, uh, he, he made the right choice. Just one other thing on back-to-back screenings. Yeah. Which is something you're familiar with. I am. John from Liscard... With two young children, cinema trips are rarer than would be ideal for my (laughs) film-going self. That is a great phrase, rarer than would be ideal. However, earlier this week, I escaped for a night at the cinema and I planned it perfectly to see three billboards followed immediately by the post by immediately i mean credit starting to roll in screen 10 you rush in dash to the trailers finishing in screen 11 however the emotional heft of three billboards needed processing and by the time i needed to come to terms the past 2 hours and my raging raging emotions of laughter crushing sadness discomfort and shock spilled over into the first half hour of the post I very much enjoyed the post, though I think it needed a clear head to fully appreciate the nuances of Meryl Streep's performance, her pauses and just lovely understated importance of the word gosh. I'm guessing back-to-back film viewings are a common thing for you, Mark, and would appreciate any pointers in approaching two films in a night escapades in the future. Perhaps the second film
1: should just be kept to Liam Neeson trotting on and punching people. There's, I mean, one of the things that, that critics I mean you, you can't ever complain about. say, so, Oh, you know, I've got to watch five films today. It's like really hard. I got one at nine, one at eleven, one at one, one at three and one at six. Is that the an actual
0: critic's voice you're doing? That's
1: my critics But but and then and then someone goes, Yeah, so your job is watching films and you go, that's Oh crazy. yeah, sorry, that's really silly. Um I mean I sort of started early with this because when I was a teenager I used to go to um late-night double bills, and then all-nighters at the Scala, particularly, because the Scala used to do these things. Where they would like run the Scala Cinema in King's Cross. In London, right. Which I th- is now closed, but I think the building is still called the Scala, isn't it? And um, you could do, like, a, a horror all-nighter in which you'd see six films back-to-back, and there'd always be one round about sort of two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning that wasn't so great, but you wanted to see the one that was at five, so you might zone out very slightly in one of them. But it just... um I mean, I've always loved it. I I, I I, love the thing about going from one screening to, to the other. I love the feeling of racking films up, but it is definitely true that there are some films that hit you with an emotional punch that you then can't get into the next one. And I'll the, the perfect example I can think of, and please don't groan about this, is that when I saw Break Heart Pass, the Charles Bronson movie, I literally could not connect with it at all, because the supporting film was Jeremy. And after Jeremy, I, there, okay, there was imagine. nothing. I mean, you could have shown me 2001 and I wouldn't have been able to connect with it because I was so sideswiped by Jeremy that I just couldn't get into the... So every now and then, there is a thing when you just think that film has hit me so hard I can't possibly go into into another one, even if you know, even if you, it's something that you do for a living.
0: We were talking about The Post uh, in the last hour, but just, just a minute, I went to see it again because some friends wanted to, yeah. uh, wanted to... it You might not think it's the kind of film that's worth re-watching, but actually... Yeah, it, I watched it twice. As mentioned in that... Last email, the nuances of Meryl Streep's and Tom Hanks's performance—something It's something that you actually only pick up on the second viewing. Yeah. And there's a, a wonderful folding arms scene which I completely missed
1: uh, on the first on the first go, and I still love the Jurassic Park scene. But
0: anyway, look out for those if you go and
1: see it again. Yeah, the Jurassic Park scene, as no one is calling it other no, than you. I know exactly. You what know you the made, bit yeah, that yeah. I mean. Yeah. It involves vibrations. The, yes, and that, a tyrannosaur that's right who'd have thought in the- I know 1970s America I mean you knew about Nixon but the Tyrannosaur on the rampage that was a shock. that shocker. was a big a big, big shock indeed 12 minutes past 3 so let's go downsizing yeah so in that interview that you just did with Paul Thomas Anderson you said what have you been doing when you were here and he said I went to the cinema and you said what did you do he said he went to see Downsizing yeah. which is the new film by uh, Alexander Payne who made uh, Election about Schmidt sideways uh, Nebraska of course and in the past, his films have tended to be kind of, you know, wry satires, tales of ordinary madness, dealing with kind of family life, suburbia, midlife crisis, families, issues which are in in many ways sort of familiar. Um, and that's why they work well. So downsizing is something of a departure. And it is, I have to say, only a partly successful departure. And I think it was very interesting that when you ask Paul Thomas Anderson what he thought of it, I mean obviously if you ask a director what they think of another film, they will generally be, they'll err on the side of being polite because they, they're not critics, that's not their job, their job is to be supportive, you know and he said, oh I loved it, he said it was completely did he say bonkers? Or...
0: Well, after the first hour I think he said it went really weird weird in a good way he
1: said. Okay, but, I, but there is, so Essentially, it's a kind of, it's a hybrid that, it's a the screenplay by um, Alexander Penn and Jim Taylor, which takes riffs from The Incredible Shrinking Man, Inner Space, and Ant-Man, and sort of combines them with the eco-concerns of An Inconvenient Truth, and then sort of weird marital upsets of Spanglish. So the story is that um, Earth's resources are being depleted, and one of the solutions which is uh, come up with is that if people agree to be shrunk down to that five inches tall, then the amount of stuff that they use and the amount of waste that they produce will be obviously, you know, much smaller. So this is suggested as the future. The scientists have designed a way of uh, shrinking everybody down to a tiny little size, and that's the way of saving the planet. However, the people that agree to be shrunk down to tiny size, although initially there is a a colony who've got kind of hippie ideals and all the rest of it, actually what you're really being sold is a dream of a consumerist world in which you can have the things that you couldn't have in the big world because in the big world you're struggling financially. In the big world there's all these... But in the small world, if you downsize, if you become one of the smalls, your money goes much further. Suddenly small people have access to mansions and to you know, facilities they never would have had before and live in this place called Leisure World is one of the places. So Matt Damon is uh, basically an occupational therapist. He's disillusioned with his life. He's struggling with his bills. And he meets up with an old school friend, somebody he's known from the past, who has gone in for downsizing and is now five inches tall and is convincing him, you know what? This is the future. The future is small. So the decision to...
2: Well, that's the thing. Downsizing takes the pressure right off, especially money pressure. Well, and plus, it must feel good to know you're really making a difference. You mean all that about saving the planet? Yeah. Downsizing is about saving yourself. But now, Carol and I—we like kings. I'm still living in the same house I grew up in. I mean, Audrey's dying for us to move, but we're really strapped. Listen, there's a lot of small communities cropping up out there, but don't mess around. Lease your lands where you want to be. Best houses, best appliances, best doctors. You've got all the great restaurants. The kids love Cheesecake Factory. And Leisureland's got three of them. <laughs> Ooh, sorry, maybe um, back up a little. I think there might be too much garlic in the
1: salsa here. Oh, yeah, right. So you're set up with this idea, which is that you agree to be made smaller and your life will improve. You're living in a sort of different but downsized community. Yes, there's an impact on the environment. But actually, the reason you're doing it is because you get to have that big house, which is smaller, but bigger, mm-hmm. but smaller. And this is a very interesting setup. And at the beginning it kind of it's it, it's all coming together in mean, a way there's just the right amount of attention to sort of just believable scientific detail, the fact that if you're going to be downsized, you have to have all your fillings removed because otherwise, you know, the fillings were it's only organic material that is downsized. And so Matt Damon's character then agrees to be downsized, and the next thing he finds himself weirdly isolated and alone and tiny in a world in which he is as despondent and as dissatisfied as he always was. Now, the weird thing about the film is that at the beginning, I was kind of going with it, thinking, this is okay, this is an interesting idea. It's dealing with a lot of different things. Once it gets into the downsized world, it very rapidly turns into a far less satisfying movie. And the, the, there's numerous reasons. One of them is that when you're in the downsized world, you're all almost completely cut off from the big world, and so it, to all intents and purposes, becomes the normal-sized world, although that is obviously part of the thrust of the film, which is that it doesn't matter whether you're big or... The, 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 actually, the, the, the problems that people encounter are the same. The second one is that um, it's got this sort of strange, meandering narrative cul-de-sacs that you keep thinking that the film is going to you know, somehow d- develop these ideas in an interesting way. And actually what it ends up doing is sort of wandering off into areas which don't quite seem to be organically part of the same story. Then you get a bunch of performances like Christoph Waltz coming in in kind of hammy, smarmy form, who's kind of like a, a caricatured character. Udo Kier is kind of fun. and But what doesn't happen is that it doesn't have the grit that it needs to have to make all that stuff work. There's also a kind of weird geopolitical story which is bubbling along underneath it. You're never quite sure how seriously or not seriously the film takes the issues that it's raising. There is a, a story about um, a Vietnamese dissident played by Hong Chau and uh, her her own story, and the way in which that interacts with the story of Matt Damon's character Paul. And through this, Matt Damon's character starts to learn that being small can be big, and being big can be small. And all these ideas that are, you know, obviously are big ideas about people and the planet. And yet there's something very dissatisfying about it. Now, if you were to be charitable, you'd say, OK, well, y- you have to admire a film that fires off in so many different directions and has all those ideas and, and is trying to wrestle with all those ideas. And as I said at the beginning... For the you know for the the beginning setup of it it's like yeah okay this is this is interesting. I think that what then happens is that all those disparate elements fail to gel that the film starts to squander the things that are really interesting, and as I said, kind of wanders off into these at one point, oddly enough, it reminded me of there's a Wim Vender's film called The End of Violence, in which um a character I think played by Bill Pullman effectively manages to become invisible by essentially disappearing into the workforce that nobody in the rich area that he's in even notice or even see. And so all the way through, there are these bits that look like they're kind of, they're intriguing flags and they've got nice ideas, but the tone of it is so uneven and the general narrative thrust is so all over the place that it ends up, and this is unfortunate, testing your patience so... It doesn't surprise me when Paul Thomas Anderson said that thing about, you know, the first hour and then. And in fact, I've heard many people use exactly that same expression. Yes, the first hour and then. And, you know, what happens and then is that it doesn't come together anything like as satisfyingly as it should do. It's not to say that I think, you know, aiming big whilst aiming small, you know, it's quite nice to see somebody trying something which is, actually in many ways completely bonkers but the problem is that it runs out of steam about midway through and it's not a short film and it just cannot it can't quite decide the tone that it's trying to get and it ends up pulling in many different directions so rather than being a film about this kind of central theme of big answer it ends up being a film which is like going off in so many different ways that none of them actually come together. And by the end of it, you feel like, OK, the the, the irony of this is, had they downsized the film itself, I think it would have been much more successful.
0: Uh, Derek Mead uh, on the email, loads of emails of people who've seen okay, this, just on. out of a screening Downsizing. Firstly, if you've seen the trailer, this is not that film. Yeah trailer suggests a comedy about little people in the big world. And the it's film not. actually tells a much darker story and one that's pretty damning of some humanity and lords others. Gender politics, racism, monetarism, ethics, it's all here. It's a real mixed bag. Me, I like sci-fi with exciting ideas and
1: there's enough going on here to say that it was worth the trip. OK, but, there, but there's, there's enough going on here. And the subtext of that is pretty much... There are things in it, but they don't quite come together. Uh, Stuart
0: from Warrington Stuart Wilson I was lucky enough to be able to attend a preview of downsizing on the whole it was very enjoyable easily hit six laughs Christoph Waltz was just electric in it, it, uh, it I thought Christoph Waltz was over the top of breath for him to speak I was not disappointed however there were downsides. The plot was absolutely all over the place. Not for one minute did I know or even think I knew where the story was going. It was just a total messy shambles of about a hundred different small stories that didn't at any point seem to come together to form a cohesive it, whole. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. Um. Louise Berry, um, I went to see Downsizing at Picturehouse York, Sunday, 11 o'clock. I'll start with the highlights. Firstly, Picturehouse members are unbelievably code-compliant, and secondly, I finally got to see a trailer for Ladybird, which looks epic. (laughs) Now for the bad. Downsizing was patronising, dull, too long, and failed to pass the six-laugh test. In fact, not one of the 120 cinema-goers laughed audibly more than once. I spent the second half of the film thinking of where to go for Sunday lunch as the film <laughs> could not... That's always a sign. That, that, that
1: should be on the poster. Spent the second half wondering where to go to lunch. But again, interesting that somebody uses that you know, second half. Uh, Sophie
0: Cookson, as the film started, I was quickly absorbed into an inventive and well-developed world which raised interesting questions and ideas about global sustainability. After 30 minutes of this engaging concept, I, was, I am convinced someone accidentally switched on a different film. This second film contained performances comparable to Nails Down a Chalkboard, a plot that made Thank little you. to no sense and veered wildly in strange directions and borderline racist undertones. I would greatly like to see the end of the film I originally sat down to see, as it had real promise. By the end of what I did end up seeing, I was hitting my head against my hands, as it was moderately more entertaining than what was on the screen.
1: OK, I mean, that's a stronger response, a stronger reaction than I had, but again, there seems to be a consensus that somewhere around the midpoint, it completely loses its way.
0: Edward Randall. I am writing from the choir stalls of the church on behalf of a vocal group called The Swingles. Alternatively known as the Swingle Singers, S- the Swingles. Singers. Swingle Singers. Some of your listeners may be familiar with us, and we have some devoted witatanes in our current lineup. Lineup. They were. I just checked because they were. Uh, they were formed in 1962. Wow. In Paris by someone called Ward Swingle. Blimey. That's oh, I
1: never knew that's why they were called the Swingle. So, I thought it was
0: like a sort of swing thing. I, thought, you know. that's, I, think, I think that's what everybody thinks. This summer, we were invited by composer Rolf Kent to co-write and perform a song for the end credits of Alexander Payne's Downsizing. As is often the case with film music, we were working to a tight deadline and the whole process of writing and recording the song took less than a week. Although we were given some thematic pointers by the composer, we didn't see the film until October, when we had the chance to attend its premiere at the London Film Festival. Our excitement about walking the red carpet reached new heights when we realised we were sharing it with your very own Jason Isaacs, because he is ours. He He is ours, he he belongs belongs to to us, us, yes. And had the chance to say hello in person. Though we may be a bit biased, we all thoroughly enjoyed the film's mix of comedy, social satire... Poignant drama and fairy tale magic. We love the sudden South Park esque laughs, and Hong Chao deserves every award coming her way. I
1: think Hong Chao is the best thing in the film. Absolutely. At the end of the screening, the
0: audience applauded before discussing the film amongst themselves, rustling with coats and so on. Except for the Swingle Singers in row B of The Circle, frantically shushing people and straining to hear their <laughs> own <laughs> voices yeah. over the commotion. So whatever your listeners think of the film, we're counting on them to do the decent thing and stay in their seats for the credits, which is something we've been discussing in yeah, the end we recent have, weeks. Yeah, we have, yeah, absolutely. Or at least make a bit less noise than the distinguished BFI audience did. Uh, anyway, so uh, we've got the song here. So this is the Go song. Ahead. So right at the end uh, of Downsizing, okay, you'll hear some of this. makes me mark by the way. It's rather lovely. It is it is rather nice so that's I mean they must have known when they were doing it that this, this is the song that everyone's going to be leaving the cinema to but out of respect to the Swingles who are it turns out big fans of the church uh, you can stay in your seat until this song which is called A Little Change in the Weather uh, has actually worked its way through Do you want to hear a bit more? Go on yeah. <laughs> Changing the Weather, sung by the Swingles. Uh, so, I... Uh I think that was really nice. Exactly, like I said, very charming. And uh, Edward Randall, thank you very much indeed cool. uh, for sending us the email. So it's three twenty-six.
1: Another review in just before we get I've, to the half past. Well, I
0: think if it lasts about um, three minutes, okay. that'd be perfect.
1: So Maze Runner: Scorch Trials, uh, Maze Runner: The Death Cure, which is the uh, the third part of the Maze Runner thing. You remember, the first Maze Runner was twenty fourteen, then Scorch yeah. Trials was twenty fifteen. So this has actually been a couple of years before now we get to this third part. I have to confess that I went into this with that sort of weird feeling of, OK, Maze Runner Death Cure. Is Maze Runner the one where the teens in a dystopian future all have similar character traits? Or is Maze Runner the one where the teens in a dystopian future are involved in a gladiatorial game? Or is Maze Runner the one where the teens in the dystopian future where one person holds the secret... We well, need to pay attention. Of the... No, it's not just that I need to pay attention. It's because there was a plethora and there has been a, a, you know, a, a, a gap. And I have to say there was a point at which a lot of them started to look like a lot of the rest of them. So this is um, uh, directed uh, by Wes Ball, and it's from uh, James Dashner's uh, novel. And you're pretty much up to speed. It is the one in which there's the, they were in. They, initially, they were in the Glater. So they were in the gladiatorial game. They were in the, the maze that moved around, and then there was monsters, and they got out, and there was a whole thing about the virus that was you know, ravaging the around the world. The, I, there's no point in going back oh. over the block, because frankly, I think having had this gap, this is definitely for... You know, for people who've been eagerly awaiting the the, the third part of the Maze Runner movie, I had—I'll be brutally honest about this—it had completely gone out of my mind that we were still waiting for another instalment. And the strange thing about it is this: um, on the one hand, the evocation of the dystopian world is perfectly, you know, adequately done. Some of the some of the visuals look, you know, sort of big and uh, sort of spectacular. It it you know it moves along it's kind of chasey and there's you know action and there's huge big you know aeroplaney things and you know there's a mission and all that sort of stuff so there's a lot of stuff happening however i do think that this has suffered enormously from the fact that we went through this kind of bubble of you know young adults teen dystopian here are the parameters of this thing that has to be set up and the in the case of The Maze Runner, at the beginning, it was kind of fairly definable what the thing was. They were in the maze. They had to run the maze. That was how the thing worked. They didn't have any memory. Why were they all being done at the end of it? There was the big revelation of what this was all about. And then since then, it has become much more generic. So it's, you know, it's solidly done. It's played with a certain degree of oomph there. It fits absolutely into that generic pattern of all those other movies which are kind of dealing with a similar thing. And I think it hasn't done it any favours at all that there's been a couple of years gap between the last one and this one, because whereas it's efficiently done and, you know, there are moments in it that are arresting and there's a couple of nice little revelations and characters that we're pleased to see without wishing to give anything away, it did feel very much like, okay, fine, have we now done with this? Have we now done with this particular cycle of films? Because I think we all have. When you said the reappearance of characters that we're very pleased to see, the first thought in my head was Paddington. Yeah, Paddington turns up. It's incredible. It's this post... you know, it's like that would be like This whole thing, and suddenly he turns up and he gives the baddies, instantly who are all dressed from head to foot in sort of UFO-style, you know, futuristic... And he gives them a very hard stare and everyone says, OK, we'll just be nice now. That it would certainly be different and memorable. Mm. It's also a film which... Weirdly enough, if you saw this on a double bill with downsizing, and I, this is hard to. No, I'll end up giving away. I, I have one word bongos.
0: I don't understand.
1: No, and I'm not going to explain it anymore because I don't want to get into plot spoilers. There are bongos in both? I'm not. Just stop. Just back off. Where well, you started? Yeah, I know. I, 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 I enigmatically set it up and then left it there.
0: Uh, in the next half hour, what are you going to be doing? Well,
1: the biggie, of course, is Early Man, which is the new album film. You'd have to say that Ward Swingle, who set up the Swingle Singers
0: back in Paris in 1961, that's a great name for a detective or for a spy.
1: Ward Swingle's Hi. Holistic Detective Agency. I'm, I'm Ward Swingle. No, the, no, the, no, the name's Swingle. Ward Swingle. That works. It does. I'm, I am writing I think he, thinking that at one point the Swingle Singers became Swingle 2.
0: Yes, I think that's right. This time it's personal. Do you personal. think Ward
1: Swingle would be quite a good name for
0: uh, a star of adult movies?
1: <laughs> like Dirk Diggler. <laughs>
0: And thank you for lowering the tone. TV movie of the week. Um, oh, hang on. Yep. Uh, Neil Hughes I should be watching The Day the Earth Stood Still Shall you? by far a better film than the thoroughly average Keanu Reeves remake. I think Mark will pick Wolf of Wall Street, a far better performance by Leonardo that, <clears throat> that would have been rewarded with an Oscar. What was that? Was that, that was that you was that a, was that a point? That was a dry throat. Okay. With an Oscar <clears throat> not for grunting for 2 hours in The Revenant. <laughs> Uh, Lynn Brist- Bristow, Mark will pick Wolf of Wall Street, but I'm going for the re I didn't
1: re- like Wolf of Wall Street. I this know. is weird. Why do people keep thinking I, didn't, I specifically said that I didn't like Wolf Visitation of Wall Street? of Mystic
0: Pizza, perfect for curling up on the sofa on a rainy afternoon. Ian Johnston, I hope Mark doesn't opt for Birdman, as it's not a big movie and vastly overrated. To highlight how long the high benchmark has been set for modern animation, I think Mark should go for How to Train Your Dragon.
1: Paul Slade, I'll be watching. Turn your phone off. Not here. I can hear it from over here. No, you can't. I could hear it from over here. I'll be watching
0: Birdman. As I went to, s- I want to see the Batman in his underpants film. The best film on the list is How to Train Your Dragon. Watched it with my daughter at Christmas, and it was perfect. Brian McGraw, How to Train Your Dragon is wonderful, and the sequel is magnificent. I'll go for Thelma and Louise, a fantastic movie that feels still feels relevant. And Joe Mackenzie. Wolf of Wall Street ran like a true Martin Scorsese epic. Mr Kermode spoke about Spielberg's ability to tell a brilliant story in last week's show. This was Scorsese back to his storytelling best. Every act has a memorable gem, from Matthew McConaughey's laying the flamboyant foundations to DiCaprio performing a perfect death knell of an individual whose only path was self-destruction. If it's not TV Movie of the Week now, it has the quality to be TV Movie of the Week in 20 years' time. Well, it's
1: not going to be that, but what is our TV Movie of the Week? Well, I am going to go for the Day the Earth, Stood Still. 1951, you know, as in Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still, but he told us where we stand.
0: You're looking at me as though that... And fact, Gordon
1: was there in silver underwear called Brains of the Invisible Man. Again, you're looking at me as though I should be nodding knowing. Okay, that. never mind. A lot of people out there understand what okay, I'm talking can about. Can you we, explain for everyone else? Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still, yes. but he told us where we stand. Go on. Science fiction. Ooh, double! It's the beginning of Rocky Horror Picture Show, for heaven's sake, or oh, the Rocky Horror Show. Anyway, but not least because it's got fantastic uh, Bernard Herman score, and it is a, a film which, again, is unbelievably timely. A film in which, you know, people arrive from outer space because mankind is going completely crazy-go-nuts and need to be spoken to by a tall person accompanied by a large robot. TV Movie of the Week. Oh, when's it on, by the way? It is on Sunday on Film 4 at 11am. So that's an ideal time. Perfect. TV Movie of the Week's Evil Twin. TV
0: Movie of the Week's So Bad It's Bad. It's our pick of this week's Unflushable (laughs) Unsavouries. (laughs) Choices this week are Exodus, Gods and Kings, Burlesque, Transformers, Dark of the Moon and Rock and Roller. James Beckingham, why do we have to choose one? They should all be avoided. Mark Harrison, you've gone too far this time. Rock and Roller is a modern day classic. No, it isn't. Nick Dusting, Transformers takes it, an experience akin to being screamed at by 2,000 angry Furbies whilst watching a speeded up loop of Spaghetti Junction at rush hour. And uh, Nice Butler Wash... I've just, I have a soft spot for Burlesque. Yes, it's a staggeringly generic storyline, but Cher and Stanley Tucci, or the Tuch as I call him, throwing out sass like nobody's business is a joy. What is our TV burlesque. movie of
1: the week? Burlesque. Why? You just used the phrase, throwing out sass like nobody's business, Burlesque. When's that on then? It's a terrible film, which you can avoid by not turning on at 6.20pm on Monday on Sony Movies. Thank you very much In order indeed. to see Showgirls uh, for, you know, I mean, Burlesque. There was a weird thing, when Burlesque came out... Um, there was this story that, you know, everyone said Showgirls was terrible and then it turned out actually later on that, uh, you know, it was a cult movie and everybody went along and they sang along and they joined in and all the rest of it. Burlesque didn't even get that level of cult following and I now know people now write in and go, yes, it did. Terrible, 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 terrible and once more, terrible. terrible. Let's close
0: that door. <laughs> Let's we? leave it behind. Let's just say no.
1: Let's okay. collectively
0: say no to Burlesque.
1: Okay. We are not at home. Would we like to tell to the burlesque. listening audience what you just had to do?
0: Well, you kept claiming it was my phone, but I just went over and it's already on airport, so I don't know... Well,
1: where. what keeps buzzing? I've got no idea. OK.
0: Let's get on with the business I do understand, which okay. is something brand new
1: and very lovely from Nick Park. Early man. Now, I know you're a huge Nick Park fan Absolutely. anyway. Who is huge? Well, exactly. Who in their right mind isn't? So this is the latest from Auburn directed by Nick Park, and um, always expectations are big for this sort of thing. So the film starts with a Ray Harryhausen-type showreel of marauding dinosaurs on the Earth, early Earth, being wiped out by, uh, by a meteor. Remember there was that thing, The Good Dinosaur, when the meteor missed, and then yeah. the whole of the rest of the film was really boring? Well, in this case, the meteor hits. And wipes out uh, the dinosaurs, and then you have several... Uh, millennia ahead oh actually what happens is after the meteor hits little fragments of hot rock are kicked around by very very early man this is uh, not it's not historically accurate in terms okay. of the t- other things living together and they kick it around in something which you know looks unsurprisingly like something that we might all know now and so then go forward uh, several uh, thousands of years uh, the meteor crater has blossomed into this lush verdant valley in which our stone age heroes are living a happy rabbit-hunting existence, never knowing that their ancestors, you know, many, many, you know, ago, had had this experience with the meteor, blah, 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 blah. Then, along, out of nowhere, comes Lord Newth, who is a metal-loving tyrant who arrives in this great big thing which essentially looks like a sort of robotic mammoth and declares, the age of stone is over, in a bad accent. Long lives the age of bronze. It's tri- Christoph Waltz again? It's it? Christoph Waltz, yeah. No. Uh, and the tribe are then driven out into the Badlands. However, Doug, who is our, our hero, is, uh, makes it to, uh, to the, the, the city of bronze, where he realises that football is a really big deal. Real Bronzio are the big team. And he decides that the way he might get his valley back is to challenge these newcomer upstarts to a football match. We challenge the champions!
2: Huh?
0: What did you say? He said. Uh, we challenge uh, what he said! If we win, we keep our valley. You leave my tribe in peace. Oh, yes. mm.
2: You think you can beat us at football? <laughs> <laughs> a match between the bronze and the brutes. What an idea. Sacrilege of Premier Leader. Yes, quite. The masses would flock to see such a vulgar spectacle. Mm. <laughs> Very
1: good. I haven't seen it, but I'm looking forward You're to it. You're laughing already. Okay, so um. You know, the voice cast includes Eddie Redmayne, Maisie Williams, Tom Hiddleston, Tim Spall, and they're all tip-top. So basically the story is that, you know, they've, they're have they going to have to play this game, but of course all of uh, Doug's tribe's people, they don't know how to play football, so they have to be taught how to play football by Goona, who is brilliantly uh, the, the girl who understands. I don't... Called Goona. Oh, yeah, oh, really? and there we go, and then we lost Simon Mayo, oh. and even I understood why that happened. So, oh, how disappointing. The thing about this film is... Every time you go into an album film, and every time you look at anything, that has got Nick Park's thumbprints all over it, and I use that sort of, uh, you know, very deliberately, your expectations are very high, and there's always the possibility of, you know, your expectations being crushed. And this is a big, ambitious project. In fact... You know, it employs CGI to add that, that sort of sense of stadium grandeur. But most importantly, the sort of primary animation, the stuff that you're actually looking at, is, uh, is, it has that stop-motion tactility, that feeling of thumbprint, that feeling of something that is being made physically by people. You can actually, you know, you can feel the physical presence of it. And I love that. I, I, I love that. No matter how big the expanse, no matter how wide the world, no matter how broad the ambition... It still has that slightly homemade feel, which I really, really like. The best thing, however, is that these are movies that are genuinely funny in a way that I find so few movies are. You know, I have this whole thing about the six laugh test came out of me saying, well, you know, I've got a tin ear for comedy and I don't laugh enough at comedy movies. In the case of this... It has that Ardman thing of the mixture of the end-of-the-peer peer fan nah, humour, you know, gags about tackle and bumps-off toilet roll and things like that. On the other hand, it has this sort of timeless sense of slapstick comedy, which is derived from Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd and the great physical comedians of the silent era. It also seems to me that the entire Ardman team as a whole at some point sat down and watched the Donald O'Connor's uh, make-em-laugh routine from Singing in the Rain and said, Take that as a textbook. You know, the story about, you know, make them do this thing and then do that thing. Then you get a great big custard pie in the face. All the time, you're sort of, you're balancing the stuff which is erudite with the stuff which is goofy and, you know, walking into... A pane of glass and doing it brilliantly because the, you know, something that Arben have always managed to do is physicality is absolutely at the the heart of what they do. I started laughing right at the beginning of the film. Right at the beginning of the film, we had the dinosaurs and we had the sort of nods to Harry And and I thought, okay, this is fine. I'm going to be sort of chuckle some opening, but, you know, possibly it's not going to keep it up. And it did keep it up. It kept me laughing all the way through. And I saw it in a screening. There was only two people. There was me and one other person who was enjoying it. I don't think they were enjoying it quite as much as I was. And I started to become self-conscious about how much I was laughing and how much I was laughing out loud and how much it was evident that if there was laughter in the room it was me because it was literally me and this other person and that didn't put a dampener on it at all I came out of the screening and a spring in my step and a smile on my face I don't think it's Curse of the Were-Rabbit which I still think is the absolute high watermark but then that's like saying well you know Orson Welles after Citizen Kane never made Citizen Kane but I really enjoyed it I really thought it it looked funny. I know, as you know, I know absolutely nothing about football. And so part of me was worried. I going to see a film in which there is a sort of football theme. I'm like, is it just going to lose me? No, it didn't. Because Nick Park said at one point, he described it as being like gladiator meets dodgeball. But in fact, for me, it was more Gregory's girl meets one million years BC via escape to victory. And somehow it makes all that work because the voice gags are funny because the visual gags are funny because it's like end of the pier but also like music hall because it has a sense of silent comedy and cine literacy but it's not scared of just making really really sort of straightforward somebody walks into a wall gag and I really enjoyed it and I know that there's loads of stuff that I won't have noticed on first viewing that I'll have to go back and see it a second time and there's no heaviness in my heart about that at all I'm I, I just want to watch it again. Go, oh, I missed that, and I missed that, and I missed that, and I missed that. I loved it. Mark Robbins says, just come out of an early man uh,
0: screening, having watched it with my mum. Brilliant movie. Uh, excellent cast, great jokes. My mum said the smile didn't leave her face from start to finish. And Good. And it was a great choice, so well done me. This is from Mark in Southampton, but obviously not that Mark. The Actually, only... how do you know that? How do you know it wasn't me? The only downside was the amount of popcorn left strewn on the steps by what appeared to be just two small children. Uh, so, Kay Mead. I uh, caught a preview screening of Early Man at the BFI in London. Had a Q and A with Nick Park as well. Having been an Ardman film since uh, fan since back in the days of Vision On, and being more than slightly obsessed with Wallace and Gromit, I bought the tickets as a family treat. While I was hopeful that a good time would be had by all, I was had slight concerns that the trailer may have been given may have given away all the good bits, as oh, okay. so often happens. And that would be hard to deliver a tale about cavemen and football that would appeal to all and live up to the studio's past works. And I need not have worried. Good.
1: Early Man is an
0: absolute gem. It was so funny. Passed the six-laugh test before the film's title had even appeared on the screen, and it kept the giggles throughout. (laughs) It's actually at least a 60-laugh experience. It is. I laughed all the way through. The film is fast-paced and engaging, with an excellent storyline, super characterization, and all the background detailing and charm we've come to expect from Aardman. Plus, it has the cutest rabbit to ever grace the Stone Age. A five-star treat. I can't wait to see it again. Matt Crocker, Bristol. Sack race champion years four to six. Dear Mussolini and Gramsci, <laughs> I was lucky enough to be invited to the uh, Bristol Which premiere. one of those is which? I don't want to be either of them. No, that's what I mean. Okay, Uh, By a friend working for Ardman, and dutifully shuffled along to the local multiplex after a brief introduction by Nick Park and Macy Williams, we settled down for a fun family film. Beforehand, I was worried that the film would get bogged down too much around the football theme, but although it definitely featured the strong character work and classic Ardman physical humour shone through, it cruised past the 17 laugh test (laughs) here. There's so so many different tests. Just add your own number. Think of a number. And had some solid jokes that pulled some of the bigger laughs... I've had at a film of late, especially enjoying the antics of the Nasher-like hobnob. Uh, hognob. hognob, hognob. The story is nothing new,
1: especially for Ardman who seemed to really like stories. Can I just say you're right? Nasha that hadn't occurred to me because I just kept thinking of hognob as a sort of a derivation of, of grommet. But actually, you're right. Nasher-like is exactly right. Uh, It's nothing new, the story's nothing
0: new, especially for Armin who seemed to really like stories where the protagonists struggle to get home, but it provided a decent background. Then there's a spoilery bit. Uh, Overall, I had a really decent time with the film. By no means a must-see, but definitely worth the price of admission. Should keep kids and adults alike entertained. Uh, Early Man, a new Nick Park film, uh, and that's out now. A special podcast extra for you now. Blade Runner 2049 was one of our most talked about films of 2017 and it's received five Oscar nominations. The film's available on digital download from Sunday, DVD and Blu-ray next week. And I've been talking to its director, Denny Villeneuve. First, here's a clip. They say you're the best memory maker there is. Well, then they're kind. I
2: love birthday parties. You work for Wallace? Subcontract. I'm one of his suppliers. He offered to buy me out, but I take my freedom where I can find it. (laughs) Why are you so good? What makes your memories so authentic? Well, there's a bit of every artist in their work. But I was locked in a sterile chamber at eight, so... If I wanted to see the world, I had to imagine it.
0: And that's a clip from Blade Runner 2049 and Denis Villeneuve, the director, I'm delighted to say, uh, is on the show. Denis, how are you, sir? I'm okay about you. Uh, Doing all right. And um, the DVD release is a moment, isn't it? When a film gets sort of reconsidered and people look at it again and they paid money to see it before. Now they're getting their own physical copy. Uh, And I guess you get a chance to sit back and think a bit more about this extraordinary project which has dominated your life. Uh, for so long are you do you get involved in the transfer of the movie to the dvd is it a big part of what you do the, the thing is
3: uh, i um on that uh, that project we we worked until the very last minute to make sure that the movie will be released for the, theater, the theatrical theatrical release. and then since then uh, i'm traveling doing press uh around the world to uh for for the movie released and uh So uh, um, Roger Deakins has been uh, at the task to do the transfers. Basically, uh, uh, approved the print, but uh, to bring the theater uh, format to the DVD format, I totally trust Roger. (laughs) Yes, if you're going to trust
0: anyone, you're going to (laughs) you are are going to trust him. But it's such a the whole point. We talked about this a lot uh, at the time. The whole point is to see this film on the biggest screen that you possibly can yeah, with has, the most wonderful sound system it, it has that-
3: been designed to be seen on a on a, a huge format you know on a massive screen or IMAX screen uh uh it has been uh, the the sound had, had been done in the atmos for atmos theaters so it's really a, like an immersive experience and it's a movie that has been edited and and shot and thought for the w- widescreen
0: experience that's the truth <laughs> So do we get a different version? Is this longer? As you know, there are many versions of the original movie. I think there were five. And Ridley said he's only happy with just the one of them. Is this the only DVD of your film that's going to exist yeah
3: the thing is that I had a different experience than Ridley it was like a, it was more of a confronting a combative uh, environment where when he made his movies mine was made with friends that were protecting my vision so I the v- version that the people saw in the theater is my director's cut I would say that uh, there was like uh, there was just one cut there was several versions there's the 3D version the 2D version uh, personally I think that uh, the the I would say the director's cut of this movie is the 2D Atmos with the Dolby Atmos uh, sound will be the my my director's cut, you know. I'm not a big 3D fan,
0: I must say. No, I didn't think that you would. <laughs> are you tempted to tinker? I mean, are you tempted to go back and just look again and go, maybe? I, 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 I was thinking, we had Sam Mendes on the show before the last Bond film. And I said, when did you stop fiddling? When did you stop editing? When did you step back and go, okay, take it away? And it was like, the previous day or it was like the previous week you know he'd only just stepped away now that the movie is out there the DVD is is about to be in people's hands were you tempted to go shall I just redo that bit shall I just no no no, no?
3: it's like uh, once the the, the the movie's finished uh, uh- it's alive it has its own life it's walking by itself it doesn't mean it's perfect but it's the movie uh, I dreamed about and that that's the movie I wanted to make and I I will not I have no regrets it's a privilege to make films but it's still it's also a very intense process and once it's finished I I step back I mean I I don't I will not uh, that's the movie I wanted to make and there will be no uh, alterations or or, uh, and I have no honestly I have no regrets it's a what i wanted to do
0: is there a a secret but i'm
3: not saying saying this i apologize i saying this i'm not saying the movie is perfect at all i mean i i know where uh there's things uh as a film director through time uh you you slowly digest the experience and see uh, what you have to improve uh as an
0: artist as a to to make a better film but uh for the next one, I will say, yeah. He says it's not perfect. Let me paraphrase the audience's opinion to the show of your movie, which they loved. And Mark loved it as well. Uh, I know he did an interview with you, did an on-stage with you and, uh, and Ridley Scott and absolutely thinks it's a beautiful work of art. There were some people, and you'll be familiar with the criticism about the gender politics uh, of the film. And I wondered if you could uh, address that. The people who think that human women particularly seemed to be written out of the film. Could you address some of their concerns about the way women are presented?
3: The thing is, uh, um, when I read the screenplay, the thing that really uh, seduced me, if I may say, is the fact that there was a lot of female protagonists. More than any uh, other projects I've read, there was a lot of uh, female parts with different colours and uh, strong characters, with some of them having more of a fin noir trope like uh, femme fatale or things like that that could be seen today uh, as a a cliche of course but uh, the way i approach it is um, for me making movies is like to try to explore uh, the world of today the movies are a mirror of, uh, of uh, our societies. I mean, I, I try to explain it. It's a movie for Blade Runner. It's not a movie about our future. It's about today. And it, it says that the things about how is approach in society today. It's a mirror of today. So it's just a reflection of what we are, I think. There's like uh, some movies are made uh, ideals, meaning that it's utopia. They want to create a world. That uh, is uh, a better world. The movie I, I'm making are exploring shadows, so it's like a, it's part of the shadows of a, of a Western world. The objectification of women, so it's part of the movie.
0: Were you surprised at the criticism?
3: No, I, I, I uh, I'm, uh, I'm um, myself when I read the screenplay. Say, okay, I'm walking in a fine line here. Uh, it has to be seen. It has to be uh, an exploration of uh this reality the way to approach it is i try to make the characters the feminine character with a uh, death and and uh, having a uh interesting characters uh, arc I was uh not a surprise but i uh, think this i mean i made uh i don't want to defend myself i mean i mean uh, i made it's my nine feature and am six of my feature I had the main protagonist was a female and, and doing things that uh, we don't see in other movies uh, i'm Consider myself being a feminist, honestly, but uh, it's uh, in that that project. Uh, it was an exploration of uh, that shadow. I would say, yeah,
0: yeah. Just on the uh, the performances that you get from your characters. I mean, everyone is brilliant in this in this film. And Amy Adams came on the show uh, a couple of years back to talk about Arrival, and everyone is brilliant in that, and everyone is great in Sicario. And I wonder if there is a there is something that you have when you're on set to get those performances because they are all astonishing performances.
3: Man, it's all about casting. Uh, so it's it's all about casting. I mean, I I have been blessed to work with uh, strong uh, actresses and actors. I mean, it's like they, I, I have a uh, and it's uh, it's the I think the relationship uh, that I'm building with the actors is is one of trust and and uh, where I'm trying to create an environment where they feel safe to to explore uh and to go uh, to push the boundaries mm. of, of their skills and uh, but that uh, I will give the credits to the actors honestly
0: it's like uh, i i i had been lucky to work with great great actors uh, you've you've already mentioned uh Roger Deakin's uh do you think it's time that he won you know that uh, thing uh, listen
3: <laughs> uh, the, the, it's like uh for me, Deakins is bigger than the Academy Awards. There, I mean, it's like he, he is a, 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 one of the great artists of our times. And what he had brought to cinema so far is absolutely unique and fantastic. And, and uh, um, of course, Academy Awards, is a, it's a beautiful uh, compliment, but you should have won several times so far. <laughs> yes, of <I> mean, course. <laughs> he's a, But at the same time, he's in a win-win position right now. Because if ever he gets nominated again, uh, if he wins then he wins if he doesn't then he, he just uh, increase the legend
0: <laughs> Is there, I wonder if you could illustrate, is there a scene that you could pick from Blade Runner 2049 where where you could explain what he does and what he brings and the aesthetic that he brought to, to
3: but uh, I will uh, uh, give an example uh, mm-hmm. I mean each uh, there's a lot of them but I will say like uh, for instance when you see um, Ryan Gosling working in the orange desert you know uh, it's a scene that uh, in order to create a scene like that uh, we needed to control totally the atmosphere to have the density of the atmosphere you cannot fake that in CG you have a character walking through strange orange fog and and for that uh, uh, we did it uh, it was it's by far one of my favorite moment of the shoot because it was totally uh done on camera we took one of the biggest stage in in uh, budapest and we filled it with uh with atmosphere and the way roger lit the the atmosphere with uh created that with filters in front of the camera created that kind of orange uh, uh, color and the way the light is done feels totally natural most of the time those shots that are done and on stage it look like artificial but this this time the the do you really feel the, like an overcast day? And the way Roger uh, used the density and the depth of field created infinity with the, the fog. So it really creates a feeling that you are in a vast environment. And I thought it was a really beautiful, very poetic, and old way of doing
0: things that I deeply love that requires a lot of strong skills to do that. Uh, some listeners' questions to you, Denis um, Takako, Fukushima says a blade runner two thousand and forty nine is a film that asks yet more questions leading from the first but gives comparatively few answers. obviously, this was a conscious choice, but is there an easier cut of the film that actually presents some of these answers through the dialogue, or were so many plot and character points always meant to be left up to, to interpretation
3: it was always like that it was always as uh, uh, one of the quality that i loved about the screenplay it was it 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 has that kind of uh, enigmatic hypnotic quality where uh, uh, you raise questions and and uh, you hope that the uh, uh, audience will be um, uh, excited enough to 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 try to find the answers yes. by themselves you enjoy the ambiguity i deeply love it it's exciting it's i love the power of a mystery yeah
0: Mike McKernan's question: Could you please ask Denis this? As the most talented, interesting, and watchable director working today, that's good. a compliment, a bit generous. Yeah. Huh? Uh, what kept you awake at night, worrying as the biggest challenge taking on a sequel to such a beloved and argued-over cult classic? Uh, so, was there was there one bit one uh, aspect no, that kept the, you awake? The, thing,
3: the thing is very simple. Uh, I, I, I was not sleeping before I said yes. I didn't want to feel like a vandal walking into a church. You know, I, I didn't... Do, do I have the right to do that? It's like the original Blade Runners being such a, a landmark in film history, uh, I, I, uh, in film history landscape. Uh, how, do I have the permission to do that? And and once I, I made peace with the the idea... Uh, uh, then I had no more fear because I, I needed to f- go back to f- the joy of filmmaking, the pure joy of uh, artistic gesture. And uh, But uh, there was a lot of anxiety
0: before, I said yes. Yeah. And the original Blade Runner, Denis, took its time to be revered. You have had fabulous reviews. Do you think it might take time also for your film to be revered in the same way?
3: Uh, Listen... I have I cannot answer to that. I mean, it's like uh, the the biggest uh, thing for a movie is to have the test of time. We are bound to to please an audience in the first weekend, but it's like uh, we, it's. I uh, I hope our, uh, the movie will endure the test of time. I hope it will be appreciated. It will be liked in the, in the future too. I would love to. That will be the biggest compliment. Will it happen? I have no idea. (laughs) We'll see.
0: (laughs) And what is taking your time next, Denis? Is it Dune or? Dune. I'm
3: um, in writing mode right now, working with a a very strong screenwriter. His name is Eric Roth, very inspiring artist. And uh, we are working together right now on
0: Dune. Denis Villeneuve, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.
1: Uh, Denny Villeneuve and his Strange Orange uh, Fog and the bitter Virtues Virtues, yes, of Oranges The full interview under the tropical
0: sun without Mark. <laughs> Getting in the way, will be on the podcast. You can download and subscribe to the Five Live website, or you can do it through your usual podcast provider. He's absolutely fascinating, uh, great conversationalist, loads to say, as you would imagine. Yeah, uh, lots of uh, lots of conversation about all his film, but obviously specifically uh, about Blade Runner. So that's Denny Villeneuve as an exclusive going to be on the podcast, uh, which you're going to enjoy, Mark, very much. Oh, I'm really looking forward. But to you've it. got five minutes to show everything that you're capable of. OK, so now. very
1: quickly, let's do Nothing Factory, which is directed by Pedro Pino. And uh, this is a very, very strange, also very intriguing Portuguese film released by the ICA, inspired apparently by the Fataleva Lift factory story, which became a uh, workers' collective. So the story starts with a factory with a bunch of workers turning up to find that the machines are being taken away in the middle of the night. The bosses then turn up and say, oh, yeah, it's all fine, it's all under control, smarmy stories have changed, but it soon becomes apparent that, in fact, what's happening is that all the workers are going to be let go, Um, they're going to be let down by the management, but they decide to stand their ground. And the idea is floated over a sort of strange period of maybe they can run the factory themselves, maybe they can take it over as a workers' collective. Now, the film is just shy of three hours long, and during those three hours it shifts in tone from being a kind of neo-realist documentary, so I mean bits of it do literally look like a documentary, to extended discussions of the inevitable decline of capitalism, to bizarre musical fantasy sequences with workers dancing around amidst the machines in sort of strange celebratory form, And it sounds like it shouldn't work, very much in the way that downsizing shouldn't work and doesn't. But what's remarkable is how much this does work. Um, For one thing, it doesn't feel like three hours at all. I was very conscious that uh, when I went in to watch it, thinking, you know, this is a big time investment involved in this. But with the exception of that discussion of the inevitable decline of capitalism, which very much sort of took me back to, um, you know, Land and Freedom, the Ken Loach thing, was the only moment that I thought, OK, I can feel this drawing its length out beyond that it m- moved on pretty uh, it, it, you know kept me gripped all the time i was reminded if you think about something like miguel gomez's sprawling arabian nights it's much more consistent if not in form but in success in as much as there's much more of it works and there are only a few bits of it that seem to fall apart i think it does a really impressive job of moving between polemic and fantasy and intimacy and alienation without losing, uh, you know, its audience. It's not for everybody, but what really surprised me is how much it was for me. I mean, I I was genuinely surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Also worth uh, pointing out, Last Fact Flying, which is a new movie by Richard Linklater with Brian Cranston, Lawrence Fishburne, and Steve Carell. Um, it's based on a novel which is by Daryl Poniksan, which is the, the novel itself is a follow-on to the novel which became the film of The Last Detail. You know, Hal Ashby made The Last Detail with uh, Jack Nicholson uh, and in the early 70s, O.J. Young and Randy Quaid. So this now is essentially like a kind of unofficial sequel because it's following on from the novel rather than the sequel to the film. Story is uh, those three characters, they're former Marines who served together in Vietnam. They're reunited uh, after decades. Uh, Steve Carell's doc shows up in Brian Cranston's bar. His son has been killed uh, in Iraq. He feels the need to reunite with his former cronies. So they go out looking for Lawrence Fishburne's character, Muller, who turns out to have renounced drink, renounced drugs, and taken holy vows. I'm glad to see you prevailing over your hardships, Doug. Oh, I do my best.
3: You at least seem to have turned out to be a decent man. No, I try to be. And so do I. Me too. I, uh... I regret any role I played in all that foolishness that
1: happened back in Vietnam. No. It's OK. What? We're going to lose the clip, there because we're going to run out of time. So, basically, here's the thing. I... It's like a melancholy road trip. It looks back at past times, seeing how they compare with the present. Brian Cranston is really impressively acerbic. Um, Fishburne keeps it all under wraps. Somebody who was now taken on, you know, holy vows and has completely changed his life and turned his life around. But actually the person who I was most struck by was Steve Carell, who I thought was very convincing as this grieving character suddenly finding themselves in a world that they didn't understand and facing up to grief and loss. It's not world-changing, but I was impressed by the ensemble performances. He's an impressive actor, isn't he? He is, he really is. What is our movie of the week? Early Man. Is that right? Yeah, but there was no there was no question about that, was there? I was just underlining the point. Okay. Just before you go, Mark. I mean, yeah, I mean I'm, got, I'm not I'm not in a hurry. Well, you've got some TV to do, haven't you? With your TV friend. I'm I'm going to do uh the TV, then I'm going to go and sing happy birthday in person to Dave Norris. How was Tromso? Oh, it was wonderful. Yeah, little, oh, uh... it was so fabulous. We went out there to um it was the, the Tromsø, film, Tromsø International Film Festival. And I've not been before. You've been, right? No. No, but you've been to... Iceland, which Iceland. is not as north as Tromsø. No. So uh, the good lady professor, her indoors, and I run the Shetland Film Festival, which is the most northerly film festival in the UK. The Tromsø International Film Festival is the most northerly film festival in the world. Yes. <laughs> and it's actually, you know, it's up in the Arctic Circle. and the, I bet all the Hollywood glitterati will turn up, though. They're all there, all the yeah. time. And it was minus 11, minus 12, something like that, when we were there. The, the night before we were there, apparently the Northern Lights were dancing in the sky in ways that you wouldn't believe. Of course, when we got there, they didn't. Um, but, you know, that's fine, because I'm definitely going back to Trom. Did you say Tromsa? Okay. But they, they, I think they say more Tromsa. I think like that. Anyway, it was really wonderful. The festival was brilliant. We played Beggars of Life, which is this 1920s uh, Louise Brooks film, which I just love to pieces. The audience were fantastic. I mean, one thing about it is that it, although it's really cold and although it's really... Be- you, you know, you kind of acclimatise. You, you, you know, you wear long johns and all the rest of it, and then you just get on with everything. But the weirdest thing about Tromsø, which is, a, you know, re- a really beautiful place is... The bit that we were in, it appeared that uh, pedestrians have right of way over cars. So you'd be walking along the pavement and you'd look at a, something across the other side of the road and the traffic would stop. And you'd have to go, oh, no, sorry, I'm not, I'm not, wow. you know, I mean, yeah, it was so civilised. So, I mean, it's, yeah, really, I would, I would recommend you go because it's just, it was breathtaking. And it was really cold, but really warm at the same time. There ain't no party like a Tromso love, love
0: party. John Meakin from Nottingham uh, on the subject of Last Flag Flying. yes. Uh, who's been to see it? Reviews made me think it would be a, pre- uh, a precise anti-Trumpian piece, but it doesn't have the courage to see it through, and the ending pulls a punch, settling instead for a comfortably sentimental position on a fence. It's a bit of an oddity from Richard Linklater. The pacing is it frequently is all- lost in baggier yeah. sides and some of the humour is notably dated. It is prob- It was probably the point. The original novel is a sequel to the Vietnam set, The Last Detail, filmed yeah. in 1971, as you mentioned. So keeping the new story to 2005 does accentuate the idea of time passing unwitnessed. Even so, poking fun at M&M and mobile phones still feels anachronistic. Right, OK. But it's still an enjoyable film, even if it lacks oomph. It's a cinematic hug, screenings of which should be accompanied by mugs of cocoa. Richard Linklater's ability to that's, write...
1: That's, that's a nice phrase, and I think, actually, that that is very Linklater because, you you know, if you know Linklater's work, he is a profoundly humanist filmmaker. To write genuine characters is undiminished, and these guys are funny without
0: needing exaggeration or quirkiness. The three leads are terrific. It's setting a mood that Linklater was probably loath to break by making us too angry. Uh, Mike O'Reilly has been on, Mark, and listen up. He's in Nutsford. Okay, Dear Mola and Premola, first email to the show, long-time listener. I feel I must correspond with regard to the remark... I don't care about some dentist. No one cares about Got some, some dentist. dentist.
1: It was a it was a quote from Three, uh, billboards. three billboards
0: mentioned by Mark last week. Yeah. I have a couple of constructive points. And this is in capital letters and bold. Okay, here we go. 1. When suffering from acute pulpitis, you do care about some dentist. Point two. Simon made a very good point that root canal work is not medieval. However, molar root canal work is not straightforward. I would like to offer my services free of charge, apart from a reserved sun lounger. I'll bring my own towel as the cruise dentist for the next voyage to provide treatment and education to church members to demonstrate that dentistry has moved on from the Dark Ages. I'll provide all the usual dentist services, along with uh, dental-related movies. Dental rental, in fact, is what it is. Finding Nemo, Gremlins, Marathon Man, Little Shop of Horrors, The Whole Nine Yards, any Harry Potter movie, because Hermione's parents were both dentists, The Hangover and The Last Jedi, because it's great and even Jedis
1: need to floss. Thank you. It's very good. Can, Mike. I, can I say something about this? About what? About, the, on the subject of dentists, which is this. I have got really really bad teeth problems and i have had you know receding bone and all manner of stuff and uh, i have had a huge amount of uh, dental prodding and surgery and i am believe me i am more aware than most people just how fabulous when you find a dentist who is going to help you through these difficult times they are suddenly the most so yeah I was quoting a movie. I don't think, who cares about it? I am one of the people who cares profoundly about my dentist because having had the work done that I've had done, I mean, you know, this is just to hold my mouth together, basically, but I've just got rubbish right. teeth. So and, it's and, quite, I think it was quite clear that everybody knows you were quoting from a film
0: and that was not film, your opinion. Yeah, and and we I've, all love dentists.
1: Yeah, No, no, it, it's, it, you love the dentist. If you find the right dentist, you want to hang on to them Forever and um, actually, I have to say that the, the, the dentist who was so brilliant to me has now retired. And when I found out he was retiring, I almost wept. Well, let, well, let's dedicate the whole of
0: this podcast to all dentists who are in the church, apart from my school dentist, who uh, made a point of not using anaesthetic. And yeah, that was that was the big thing. Yeah, and when dentists. I when
1: I was Thank at school, I had a dentist who was from the middle ages, who was at one point drilling one of my teeth and missed. And that's where we move on.
0: Uh, we still have a DVD of the week uh, to come, and that'll be a triumphant end to the show. But you've got a little review, have you? I'll just
1: done? very quickly do 12 Strong, just because we, we didn't get... 12 12 Strong, because we didn't manage okay. to get this. It's Mark Strong. It's it's Mark. It's Stro- me, Mark Strong. Yes, Be twelve back. strong. So this is portentously portentously Builders, the declassified true story of the horse soldiers. It's an unremarkable film about what appears to have been a remarkable uh, military campaign in the aftermath of nine eleven. So um, Chris Hemsworth is the team leader, Mitch Nelson, who is basically testing his mettle on this top top secret mission to take a um, uh, key uh, Afghanistan town in tandem with local anti-Taliban warlords. It seems like uh, an impossible mission, but he's the man for the job. Here's a clip.
3: We're teaming up with a warlord that we know nothing about. We're not going to be able to tell our enemies from our allies. Every step we take is going to be on a minefield from a hundred different wars. And no one's ever called in a smart bomb airstrike from a B-52. So anyone who tells you they've done this before has experience in this is lying, sir. There's no playbook here. We're going to have to write it ourselves.
1: I briefed
2: five potential captains for this mission. About a 100 years of military experience between them. But you're the only one that sees it the way it is. I choose you. You and 11 men. Task Force Dagger. I would be remiss if I did not say to you, even in success,
1: the odds of you coming home. You're 100%, sir, with all due respect. It's the economy to promise, to.
3: You know better than that, Nelson. What'd she get
1: you to? Christmas. It's a hell of a thing we do, isn't it? How do you love your family and leave them to go to war? I mean, I think that kind of gives you the sense it's a movie in which everybody says everything out loud just in case you missed it. And it's like, you know, 13 Hours or, or, or Lone Survivor that they're kind of torn between, you know, tough truths and saleable cinematic spectacle. I mean, the weird thing about this is that it looks oddly towards the sort of cowboy and western cliches for some of its rousing action set pieces. It's very efficiently put together, but it steers clear of any sense of the, uh, you know, unacknowledged chaos which followed. And it does require a kind of act of collective amnesia in order to sort of properly enjoy it. It's, it's just, it's, it's a strange hodgepodge of a movie, oddly unsatisfying, but completely competent. Uh, ben in Brighton, last week's show brought back a memorable uh, memory. I suppose
0: all memories are memorable, but anyway this is particularly memorable, of a trip to the Regal Cinema in Cromer when I was ten years old. As a birthday treat for a girl in my class, four of us went to see the sci-fi spectacular Explorers yeah. with Ethan Hawke and River Phoenix flying their dustbin-type contraption in space. Except that on this occasion we didn't get to see them do this as someone had got their programs muddled up. When a different film started up, the birthday girl ran into the foyer, only be, only to be told that Explorers wasn't due to be shown until the following month. Right. Instead, we found ourselves in a screening of When the Wind Blows, which was last week's DVD of the week. OK. Hence, it's, this story's place yeah. now. Last week, Mark gasped at the thought of ten-year-olds sitting watching When the Wind Blows, and I thought I'd let you know that I can still remember those feelings of confusion and emptiness and being really rather scared. I walked out afterwards feeling very alone... And very low in a way I hadn't experienced before. And when I read the CND flyer I'd just been given by a smiley lady with a colourful, punky haircut, I realised there was much more going on in the world than I'd previously (laughs) been aware. 31 years on, and I still don't quite feel ready to watch When the Wind Blows Again and relive the horror. The horror. I could say more Ooh. about the Cold War, but I've signed the Official Secrets Act.
1: Take deep Tongue. We have so many listeners who have signed the Official uh, Secrets Act. They need their own alcove, uh, don't they? The, the official... official Secrets Act Office. Yes, they ne- they have to have their own office. Their own office. And
0: they can they completely can, can, they, can they tell each other
1: things? If you've all signed the, co- the, the what you mean? If somebody's met is signed the Official Secrets Act, can they tell somebody else who's signed yes. the Official Secrets Act one of the Official Secrets? So if I'm if I've been That's... a translator at the Foreign Office and yeah.
0: I've translated a special document, and yeah. so have you, can yes. I tell you about my document? You know, I, I honestly don't know. Well, let's find out. If you, okay. if you have signed the Official Secrets Act, and if you're in the Official Secrets Act office, yeah, uh, can, you church, can you tell somebody else? I suspect the answer is no. No, but if you can, if you write, or in, yes, but then we'd have to kill you, and then, but if you could also tell us an official secret in your email,
1: but dress it up in a way that makes it look like you're not. Breaking as a film review. I was watching a film the other day about the revelations the of revelations. Some ex- extraordinary documents. That's right. Anyway, that's the challenge. Can and I ask you a question? A serious just question. Just before our DVD of the week, yeah, is I'll it going to be about politics? Or no, wo- right, no, no, because I'll get jumped all over by Robin. But um, when somebody says to you, Can you keep a secret? What do you say? Well, everyone always says, Of course. Yeah. because you just want to hear what their secret is. OK, but so can you keep a secret? I suppose it depends what the secret is Are you and who's telling you. Are you generally trustworthy? Like if somebody says to you, can you keep a secret, and you say yes, and they then tell you something. Yeah, pretty much. It, are you as good as your word? What are you going to tell me? No, I'm not going to tell you anything. I'm just wondering philosophically. Is this because... a conversation for, to have in the bar? But yeah, I, I guess I am. I love the fact that you've suddenly distinguished this bit of the podcast is a conversation to have in the podcast, as opposed to all the other... What else would you like to know? No, that's fine. Are I'm, you trustworthy? I'm done now. Nope. No, nope, I'm finished. You're, not you're not, are you trustworthy? Yes. So I could tell you a secret now and you wouldn't tell anyone else? If you said to me, don't tell anyone else this secret, I wouldn't. I used to be an MI6. Okay. I won't tell anyone. Thanks. Anyway, a while back, we were talking about the DVD of the week uh, from last week. Somehow seems like an anti-climax Which now, but there we go. brings us to this lovely piece of music.
0: Mark, do you ever get up and do the same thing over and over again for years? Very good. Do you see the same people day after day, week after week? You try and be a bit of a better person every day, learn something new, a language perhaps or a musical instrument, but still there's the repetition and you still bump into Ned Ryerson everyday day. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Groundhog Day mm-hmm. unbelievably gets a 25-year anniversary.
1: No, it's not really, it's is it? 25 that years. That can't be true. So will Mark pick that or oh, something Oh, that's else? really scary. Let's see your
0: choices for DVD of the week. Blake MacDonald. Groundhog Day for me, a true masterpiece from the much rift Harold Ramis. Bill Murray and Andy McDowell excel in this beautifully realised fantasy classic that really sticks in the memory even 25 years from its original release. The legendary Roger Ebert included it on his list of great movies and it's easier to see why. I love it. Um, Joseph Bartram says Mark will probably go for Marjorie Prime. Paul Doherty says, has to be the super deluxe new 4K restoration of Dario Argento's The Cat and Nine Tales on a Blu-ray. Jonathan Croft, I'd pick Ivan's Childhood because Tarkovsky makes everything better and I'm willing to bet money that Mark will choose God's own country. And James Woodward, at the risk of excessive convolution, is there scope on the show for DVD So Bad It's Bad of the Week? No, there's not. If so, <laughs> well Mark done. would definitely plump for Kingsman 2 in that category but in lieu of that, Mark will plump for one of his slightly left of field picks and choose Marjorie Prime. Oh and Groundhog Day for old because it's completely brilliant. What is our DVD of the week?
1: Well as you know we now have two DVDs of the week which is uh, the, the, the new DVD and the reissue so for the reissue I'm definitely going for Groundhog Day. Not least because I'm shocked that it's is that 25 years? Mm-hmm. That's just astonishing I I remember going to the Press screening of it. That's really so. Yes, I have been. Literally... I remember doing breakfast and the
0: uh, and as a stroke of genius, coming out of the six o'clock news and with playing. So I got you, but well Uber. done and f- and genuinely freaking out a lot of people who'd all been to see the film and suddenly thought, "Hang on, genius." I mean, Groundhog Day,
1: genius. Okay, and then uh, for the new release, I am going to go for Marjorie Prime, which is Michael Armerader's uh, film and. It, because it's a really... if Particularly since we've been talking about Blade Runner 2049. And that's a film which wrestles with ideas of being human, of an artificial intelligence, of what memory means and how memory constructs a character. And Marjorie Prime does... It deals with exactly those same issues in a very, very different way. It's very much a sort of chamber piece. It's, you know, more theatrical in terms of its presentation, but it it's so moving and so touching and is so much a film about artificial intelligence versus human intelligence and the way in which a character is defined by their, their own knowledge of their past and their memories and that makes it sound so much more like hard work than it actually is it's a very very good double bill with Blade Runner 2049 and in a sense <clears throat> today's show has been a double bill because
0: to have Denny Villeneuve and Paul Thomas Anderson on the same show is pretty high ranking you have to say
1: literally a muster that cannot be equaled.
0: Mark can I just say you've been tip top tippity top hang dang doody. <laughs> what? Tippity-top, dang duty. I don't know. No, never heard that before. Oh, everyone says that. OK.
1: Everyone says that. The kids are saying that. Are they? If you okay. bump into a kid now, okay. the very act of you bumping into them, they'll say... Tippity-top, dang duty. And my job for this week is to not tell anybody or allow it to go out on Twitter that you used to be in MI6. M- MI6. MI6. I'm going to keep that complete to myself just between you and me. You're super trustworthy as ever. I'm super tramp is what I am.